0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio.
3: Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday to you. And uh, man, you made it through the week because it was a shorter week for many of you. Hope, uh, hope you're having a good day so far. We've got uh, so much to talk about, including the, the bomb has is still hitting the East Coast. Airport's still shut. Flight's still
0: delayed. Oh, I thought you were talking about the bomb of fire and fury.
3: Oh, no. That bomb It's a different bomb. Also, uh, seriously, I don't know what it's doing. It's... Uh, Every minute, it seems like a different bomb is going off. Bannon loves the president. The president loves Bannon. Then they hate each other. Then they love each other again. Then uh, Wolf, the author of the book uh, Fire and Fury, is on television saying that Bannon's done a complete turnaround, figured out that the president can't lead the country. Ah! Well, and Terry and I were it's talking crazy. about this before the
0: show that President Trump probably isn't doing any, himself any favors
3: by bringing all this attention on the book. It's oh. probably helping the sales. No, but he said they, they, they did a cease and desist order. And so cancel it. We're not Do not send that book out. And they decided to up the well, date.
4: They went, we have tapes. Yeah, of the interviews, the two hundred interviews in the White House that they did. No, he didn't
3: have access.
4: No, he did to the and um, yeah. They went okay. We'll just move this up. It was supposed to come out Tuesday. It's out right now. It's out. Go get it. Yeah. So you. you It's now. Michael Wolff this morning thanked the president for making his book number one. Wow. (laughs) He put so much attention on it. It's now the number one selling book. You you just have to be quiet. No one would notice. No one would notice. Well, he tried. Last night, President Trump put out some tweets not about this topic, trying to Uh, turn the public opinion. It didn't work. That's interesting that he thanked
0: them, because when the filmmakers of that O.J. documentary won the Oscar, I don't remember them thanking O.J. Not to say that the president has done anything as bad as O.J., allegedly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Allegedly.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Um, Uh, I I guess, though, here's the weird thing, because it's a lot of news picking up all the stories, but it's still um, – there's been things in the book that have already been discredited. He's seen as kind of an extreme writer. Sure. And yet it's getting all of this
4: attention and interviews as if he's Woodward and Bernstein. Well, he sat in the White House and talked to people. Yeah. That's that's where I think the credibility for this is coming is he – no one denies he was in the building. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's like. And, and, he's, and, and, <laughs> it's he, not, and he had a lot of access to, I mean, to a lot of people. Now, this was funny. I read this last night. He wrote a. Michael Wolf, uh, the, the, uh, the writer, put out an article in the Hollywood Reporter about this and how he gained the access to the building. Now, he came through Bannon, got into the White House, he's talking with Trump. And he, he says, he goes, I want to write a book about you. And Trump says, a book? He, he, he goes, he said, a book, questioning kind of losing interest. And he says, I hear a lot of people want to write books, this is Trump. Added, clearly not understanding why anyone would want to. He goes, do you know Ed Klein? He wrote several anti-Hillary books. And he goes, yeah. I'd rather have him write a book about me. And, <laughs> and he goes, he's a great guy. I think he should write a book, but Sure. Trump sure. seemed to say knock yourself out. So Trump yeah. didn't say yes and he didn't say no when the, when Wolf asked for can I come to the White House, be a fly on the wall right. and write a book about the first days of your campaign and People heard this conversation, and so when they saw Michael Wolf on their list of you know requests, they're like, "Sure!" So they I let guess, him in. Yeah,
3: I guess the president's for this. And so he goes, "He's the, in the
4: building." He goes for weeks. He go, "I'd come. I'd stay at the Hay Adams Hotel. I'd make appointments with various senior staffers who put my name in the system, right, to get in the yeah, front door, yeah. and then wandered across the street into the White House, sat down on a sofa day after day, talking to all kinds of people about what's going on. And they were willing. They wanted oh, to come talk wow. to me. And then he says." He spoke with top officials, uh, lower level aides. He goes, uh, he wrote in the Hollywood Reporter, goes, my, and my impression of talking with them and observing them all is that they all 100% came to believe that he was incapable of functioning in the job. Why? Mm. So he wrote that yesterday. Uh, so again, it just, you can't, you really can't stuff. question
3: if he was in the building and had access. And I
4: think that's like what you're saying. They're treating him like a Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. He's really not. Mm-mm. And he's got, as, as Trump keeps saying, you look at his past and it's kind of questionable the way he does his reporting. It's not, you know, all the way fact based, yeah. but he's in the building. So it's like, how uh. do you how do you balance that? So who would his deep throat be? Would half, it be Bannon? Apparently half Everybody. the staff. <laughs> well, and the other thing is there <laughs> but was Bannon was a big source. On all but all. there okay. was ma-
3: there's major division on the staff anyway. So everyone would talk about everyone else, too. Mm-hmm. So it really would have been a
4: free for all. Yeah, which is – with that, and that matches up with stuff The Washington Post, yeah. The New York Times, they Politico. They call him the wolf
3: in the hen house or whatever. Yeah. The wolf was in there and nobody – and I guess everybody thought he had permission, he had, he had permission because he's there.
4: Well, it, it shows you that there was no reporting to anybody. Mm-hmm. No one had any sort of system where now he wouldn't get oh. in. Because Kelly wouldn't let him in the door. But Reince Priebus was like, I don't know, the president didn't say no. (laughs) What else is weird about this? This is probably more worrisome to the president
3: than the Mueller investigation.
4: Oh, yeah. This is public perception. This is, this is PR,
3: and he hates bad press. Oh, yeah. This is bad,
4: bad press. I mean, oh. we've heard the stories of how he'd call the gossip magazines in New York and kind of feed them stories to make himself look good. Yeah. And now those same sort of reporters are the ones coming after him. Mm. But the stories
3: are crazy.
4: Yeah. And that's the other thing is they're just – they're kind of fun.
3: And then – but then we – apparently some of them are obviously wrong.
4: Maggie Haberman, who yeah. writes for The New York Times. Yeah. She's, she's coming she's out she's come with out a big – She says it's, it's thin. It's, 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 it's a good read, but it's thinly reported. The yeah. editing could use some some help. And so she's kind of knocking it down because she's the other person oh, that yeah. has this kind of access. So she's like, hey, get away from my turf. Yeah, this mm. is mine, man. But she says there's parts of it that have been proven to be untrue. Granted, she didn't say which ones, which parts. Yeah, she'll have to come out and, I guess, validate that. She's, she was on CNN saying this. But, but she, they asked her for examples. She goes, They'll come out. You know, like, OK. Maybe
0: somehow this could improve the public's perception of the president.
4: I don't think so. Jimmy Kimmel last night said, "Is this actually Trump being a businessman, and he's got maybe a cut of the sales of this book, so he's trying yeah, to pump I mean, up sales
3: <laughs> bumping up sales, but Trump did come out and say it's full of lies, yes, but apparently some truths maybe eh. and uh he had zero access except he to didn't... him right,
4: right, right. No one ever talked to me, so it's not true,
1: yeah,
3: right. I mean but... he did talk to two hundred other people hundreds of hours, yeah. By the way, this is also why you you really want to be organized. Like, you you couldn't see this really happening in a Trump presidency, right? Because A Trump? I you mean, mean not Obama? A, an Obama presidency. Because yeah. no one would have access unless it was no. the biographer to right. be that he wanted. Right. And he's vetted and he's your guy. You, you know what let he's going to do. You don't let a journalist slash author
4: in just wandering around yeah i mean you can almost see that he could just wander freely all day he said he uh, wolf said he was in meetings that he probably shouldn't have been in but he was there no one seemed to mind like classified i don't know if classified but you know it's kind of meetings meetings that aren't really for just some guy walking
3: around the hallways oh man wouldn't that be funny if you go back and start looking at a lot of the videos and pictures and it's bannon and pence and wolf just just in the back back, just listening
4: what's he doing over there
3: sharpening his pencil In his pajamas. Uh, Interesting stuff. Okay, well, what other headlines do we have, Terry? Anything else in the news we should be paying attention to?
4: Um, So Wolf went on uh, NBC's Today Show. He says uh, Trump's proving the point of his book. He goes, not only is he helping me sell books, but he's proving the point. Uh, This man does not read. He does not listen. He's like a pinball just shooting off the sides. They all say... He's like a child. That's what he said this morning on oh today's show. Uh, joining the esteemed ranks of Little Marco, Low Energy Jeb, Cricket Hillary, and Lion Ted, President Trump is now calling Steve Bannon Sloppy Steve. Sloppy. Hey, people have been calling him Sloppy for years. Yeah, he's got like the double colored shirts. He doesn't quite. Yeah. yeah so, um, in other news: President Donald Trump directed his White House counsel to tell Attorney General Jeff Sessions to not recuse himself from the Justice Department's investigation into potential ties between Russia. And the Trump campaign, according to a person familiar with the matter, the conversation between Don McGahn, the president's White House counsel, and sessions took place on the president's orders and occurred just before the attorney general announced that he would step aside from the ongoing inquiry into the Russian meddling Mm. in the 2016 election. According to a person with knowledge of the interaction, this was first reported by the New York Times. Other media outlets have have also confirmed the story. Two other people confirmed details of the conversation between McGahn and Sessions. All three people spoke on conditions of anonymity to the Associated Press to avoid publicly discussing an ongoing investigation. The episode is known to special counsel Robert Mueller and his team of prosecutors and is likely of interest to them as they look into whether Trump's actions as president, including the May firing FBI director uh, James Comey, amounted to improper efforts to obstruct the russia investigation oh boy so now you have that just yeah. more uh, evidence moving towards the obstruction charges
3: you know it's really um it's crazy also spicer's now out there i mean there's a lot of leaking coming out of this there is white house now
4: there is now there's, there's some names attached to the
3: leaks, too. So. Uh, yeah. but, and this is weird because <clears throat> the leaking's happening now without Bannon in there and without Priebus in there. It is. Who were supposedly leaking The before. leakers, yeah.
4: As a monster winter storm rolls out, East Coast residents will face a deep freeze Friday from the Mid-Atlantic to New England, the National Weather Service reports. Numerous records show and record low highs are expected with the Arctic air mass. With some of the coldest temperatures ever recorded, expected for Boston and New York City. The Weather Channel forecaster, uh, Weather Channel has said coastal areas in the northwest, uh, or excuse me, coast areas in the northeast may experience temperatures in the single digits, wind chill Mm. factors making it feel as cold as negative 15 degrees from Philadelphia to Boston. Thursday's powerful winter storm brought hurricane force winds, blanketed the region in snow, flooded coastal areas, including Boston Harbor, Cape Cod, and North. south shore areas did you see that in downtown boston there's this video of like a fire truck big ladder truck driving through through and the water's up to its doors you're like wow then that's going to freeze yes it is
3: so you're going to have what a huge ice skating ring
4: yes if if the temperatures drop to negative 15 yeah Uh, or if they'll feel that cold Uh, uh speaking of new england there's problems with the patriots What? An explosive report from ESPN today describes serious tensions at the top of the New England Patriots that are threatening to rip the heart out of the five-time Super Bowl champion winners. According to the report, friction among quarterback Tom Brady, coach Bill Belichick, and owner Robert Kraft has reached such a boiling point this season that several insiders said it could be the final season the successful combination remains together. What? At the center of the feuding, Brady's reported devotion to his business partner-slash-training guru Alex Guerrero and Belichick's effort to distance the, quote, body coach from the team. Patriots officials called Guerrero's methods cult-like in their sway over players, particularly Brady. Belichick is also reported to have bristled at the 40-something quarterback's demands for a new lucrative long-term contract, despite his success at his age already being nearly unprecedented in NFL history. In, wow. a, in a statement, the Patriots officials say the report had several inaccuracies, multiple examples given that are absolutely did not occur, but did not give specific examples. So let me get this straight. Yeah, go ahead. Brady's basically in an exercise cult. He,
3: uh, yeah. <laughs> and Belichick doesn't like it, and he uh-huh. doesn't want the cult leader to come in and take over all of the other athletes' brains. And there's a contract dispute. And Brady sort of. wants more money to play more years, and you got to sway Kraft and Belichick
4: yep. to make that happen. Right. Wow. And they're probably the team favored to win the Super Bowl.
3: And you may end up seeing Tom Brady, like, with the Buccaneers.
4: No. Okay. <laughs> They'll figure it out. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Every, all this happens, and they never say anything. Right. It's always sources say. Hey, you know. cults come and go. <laughs> dime it, a dozen. It is a dime a dozen. And finally, this is more of a personal note. Trying, to, I want to get your guys' okay, opinion on yeah. where what I should do next. Okay, yeah. Piece of cake. All right. So over the past seven weeks, 58 people in the U.S. and Canada have become ill from a dangerous strain of E. coli bacteria. Ooh. Now they're saying likely from eating romaine lettuce. Like you do every Which day Which is the key element of my salad every Whoa. afternoon Yeah, we're done with that yeah. Hot pocket So it says in the U.S. the infections have occurred in 13 states Okay, California, Connecticut, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Vermont, and Washington State That's 13 if you were counting Right, so all those different states Yeah, well just don't eat your salad there Five people in the U.S. have been hospitalized One has died according to the, US, Ooh, the yeah. Center for Disease Control There's also been one death in Canada, but, you know, Canadian health authorities identified romaine lettuce as the source of the outbreak in Canada and are advising people in the country's eastern provinces to consider eating other types of salad. Iceberg? Yeah. We'll get to that. In the U.S., government health officials are investigating the outbreak but have stopped short of recommending people avoiding romaine lettuce or other foods. So Hmm.
3: they're not saying get away from it, avoid it yet. But – they probably need to, it sounds
4: like Consumer Reports food safety experts are advising that consumers stop eating romaine lettuce until the cause of the outbreak can be identified so and are. the offending product Well, that's consumer reports. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's not like so we're not going to get a product recall, things aren't you know products right. are not going to be removed the from romaine the Romaine Lettuce Association's not going to shut the doors. So my question is, I am not in one of these states where over the last seven weeks fifty eight people have been Or are you in the next state? You might be in that's the That's my question. State. Mm. Do I roll the dice and stick with my tasty romaine lettuce? Because mm. no. iceberg lettuce is essentially just kind of fibrous water. Mm-hmm. There's no it's, taste. It's, yeah. it's kind of gross. So this is Chunky sounding water. This is sounding as
0: bad as those gas station nachos with yeah. the Doritos. Maybe that's what you ought to go to.
4: Nachos? Yeah. Have a big nacho burrito. No, I did that on New Year's <laughs> Eve. Did you? Chicken, chipotle, nachos, big, huge. Ooh. I have video. It's good. You know, I'm,
0: <laughs> I'm predicting this is – we're not going to – the next end of the world movie is not going to be about some no. tropical storm no. or earthquake. It's going to be uh, this salad. Romaine lettuce. lettuce. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what should
4: I do? Should I – Hot pocket it. It hasn't been here, though, <laughs> right? Never, it's kind of around my region, but region. Have not you ever
3: heard of somebody dying
4: because of a hot pocket? They should have. No, it, it was probably a contributing sure, factor. You
3: burn your mouth a little bit, right?
4: And if they don't remove that cardboard sleeve yeah. that's supposed to help with the cooking, mm-hmm. come on.
3: Yeah, some people don't know that you're not you're not supposed <laughs> to eat that. But uh, I, it's, that's actually scaring me because today is the first time I think I've ever brought a salad to work. Mm. Is it romaine? Today is bring your salad to work day, or is it kale? No, it's not Because your kale. wife's big on kale. No, she's, we don't like kale.
4: A lot of times there's that garden one <laughs> that looks like you just went in the backyard yeah. and pulled a bunch of weeds. No, totally. Yeah. Uh, it, um, it's, it's, not,
3: it's not romaine lettuce. It's probably more icebergy. y
4: You think so? What you brought? Okay. So yeah. what should I do? Should oh, well, I continue with my why romaine? Don't, why or? don't you
3: do this? Uh, this is going to sound totally foreign to you. Mm. Why don't you mix it up a little bit? Mm. And instead of having a salad for 780 days straight, yeah. the exact same salad, right. why don't you mix it up and uh-huh. now find something else to put your other fixings on? I don't want to think mm. about it, though. I just want to make my lunch and oh, no, but, sit down. But all you'd have to do, really, is maybe mm. you could go pour your fixings uh-huh. on top of celery or, or kale. On top of- yeah. No, do all the other leafy no.
0: greens like kale? Maybe Ooh, go to collard iv- greens,
3: ivy,
4: mm, parsley, spinach. Pars- no, go to spinach. No. Parsley is going to be a good one. No, but
3: like like really, you don't like spinach. Nah, I'm not
4: cream? a big spinach fan. Oh. If you put it in like an omelet with a bunch of sausage and bacon, yeah, you can cut yeah. it. Yeah, it was good. When so, I had that the other so day. So just do that.
3: Maybe maybe make an omelet for the next couple nah. of weeks.
4: Too much work, isn't it? Beats. Yeah. You know what? Maybe it, you could do beats. It's more just the work. I you need something are, simple.
3: But you also seem like you're pretty fit. You could handle a little E. coli breakout.
4: Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the other thing. Just Should, risk if it. I, if I if if I I chanced E. coli mm-hmm. and I actually contracted E. coli, that'd be good for the show. That'd be great. I, could, be I great. could come in and describe myself. Sin- though. The
3: though. How so? It's, well, not, we, it's not contagious.
4: Hmm. Hmm. Well, we just keep, it, had we it?
3: keep him in his producer
4: booth. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. I have a glass wall. just sit over there. We don't even have to talk to him.
3: <laughs> Let's
0: do it.
4: Experiment for the show. I'm I love see if how we you get... said.
0: Love you said. Let's do it.
3: <laughs> I'm going to see if we can send you up to Seattle, up to Washington. See if I can contract it yeah. there. Just put me in you ground don't zero need to go out of state to contract E. coli. No, I mean you can get it. Just you it's,
0: know. it's beautiful up there, though. Yeah. I would almost be willing to contract it just to visit Seattle.
3: <laughs> you, you know what? Um for anybody that's out there that's had E. coli. Come for the E. coli,
4: nuts. stay for the view. <laughs> I came for the
3: E. coli.
4: <laughs> but I love the fish market. Um okay. Well, i am just sort of I, torn I, I think, think mic- you gotta risk it. I don't feel threatened. Yeah. I feel like it's you know, it's out there, I'm aware of this. Yeah, you know that. What if I just wash my, my, my vegetables, aren't I I'm okay, right? I don't know. Isn't that Bleach how it works? Bleach. Bleach, them. Yeah. bleach the heck out it of them. When in doubt,
3: bleach it out. That's what grandma used to say. <laughs> bleach the lettuce. That would add to the taste. <laughs> oh, geez. You really could mix it up, though. Nah. You could just try some, some for just a week or two until mm. this goes away, okay. just try some iceberg lettuce. Nah, it's really gross. It is gross, but it's, it's not as gross as E. coli, I promise you. Nah. Just imagine, like, going and purchasing a bottle of E. coli. Okay. And just pouring it all over your salad. That's all right, gross. E. Yeah. coli. <laughs> <laughs> it's right wow, next to the brother. bacon bits, right? Totally. Okay. Hey, uh, up next, we're going to be visiting a, a big issues going on right now. A Yale psychiatrist came out, briefed members of Congress on Trump's mental fitness. Is it appropriate for psychiatrists to be diagnosing a president that they've never seen? And by the way, that they've never interacted with except what they see in in public press and public media. Up next, we'll be talking to a gentleman that says, no, no, we probably ought not be doing that for a variety of reasons. We'll be discussing it straight ahead. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, over and over, uh, we'll hear just in passing comments, sometimes even by professionals, uh, health professionals, mental health professionals, about the the mental health and the and the psychological or psychiatric strength of President Trump. And the question, I guess, when we get into it, is is that appropriate? I mean, is that something that psychiatrists should be doing? Um, is is out there talking about? The mental health and the mental stability of, uh, of our leaders. And is that a good precedence to start? So we wanted to, to actually get into the issue uh, a lot more. We found a wonderful article in the conversation by our next guest, Arash Javanbach, about why psychiatrists should not be involved in presidential politics. And, uh, and it's really filled with some pretty interesting insight that many of us may not have thought about. Arash, thank you so much for being with us today.
5: Good morning, Matt. It's a pleasure.
3: And again, you're a psychiatrist, a certified board psychiatrist, an MD from Wayne State University. Arash, talk to us about um, what you're seeing. I mean, should psychiatrists, should mental health professionals be, be commenting on the mental health of our president if they've never met with the man?
5: So there has been a there has been a long-standing argument about this issue. So there are two sides in this uh, in this story. The tradition has been what we refer to as Goldwater Rule, which uh, basically happened after Fact Magazine uh, during an election in 1964. I think uh, uh, sent a poll about uh, mental health of Barry Goldwater to uh, some psychiatrists. And then there was the lawsuit, and then the American Psychiatric Association following on that set an ethical rule uh, which uh, basically says a psychiatrist who has not examined the person without their consent and does not have uh, their consent to announce the diagnosis or if, uh, or a professional opinion about the person, they're not allowed to make. A judgment, uh, a professional opinion or diagnosis mm. about that person, whether a public figure or a person uh, or a private person. But then on the other side of the argument, there's a group of uh, psychiatrists who are arguing that um, the current president may be dangerous because of his mental health situation. And they refer to uh, another rule, which is called the duty to warn. So, but basically, duty to the warn is that if I, am, if I have a patient and I see that patient and that patient poses a threat to another person, I have the duty to warn the authorities and the potential victim. Again, APA uh, argues that this, well, this is not, this, this rule does not apply to making comments about public figures who are not in a doctor-patient relationship with a psychiatrist.
3: Yeah, right. It's interesting because we're, we're, I guess, now we're we're starting to have to have discussions, um, and, and I think it's really important about mental health. We see it in the news all the time with mental health issues, where a gunman has a mental health issue and then goes out and shoots people, and you can see that that would be a beautiful place, I guess, to use the duty to warn uh, rule. Uh, then there's the the whole Goldwater rule. But our, our, part of this is, I guess, this is just the discussion we need to be having. It seems like a rush that about mental health, because by the minute we start casting aspersions about the president's mental health, we, we may be setting ourselves up for a lot of other issues. Right?
5: That's true, and that is the argument that I have in this paper. That regardless of the ethical issues. Or if the president does or does not have a mental health condition, I have been looking at it from a cost-benefit ap- approach. Basically, what is the benefit? What is it going to do? And uh, to what good does it do? And what bad does it do? And uh, there are a lot of serious concerns that I have about this. Uh, so one is about the stigma. Stigma has been around the psychiatry and mental illness for centuries. People have been demonized. People with mental illness have been demonized, has been marginalized. And there has always been a negative view. And just recently, with all the progress that we have made in advocacy and actual in science, learning about the illnesses and knowing that well, the disease of a brain is not that different than a disease, disease of pancreas, like, such as diabetes, right? Right. And we have treatments for these conditions, So we are destigmatizing and we're removing that uh, old embarrassment that the person with a mental illness could have in the past. And now in such an emotionally charged political sphere, when psychiatrists and mental illness are linked to these conditions and linked to the politics, then you can imagine people who have whether positive or negative emotions about the political sphere or the current president, how their approach and how their view and how their attitude towards mental illness towards psychiatrists and towards a person with a psychiatric illness could change. Mm. And I think that can do a damage which is hard to reverse.
3: Well, I think you're exactly right. And then you make a great point also in the article saying, and I guess that means that in the next uh, presidential election, we'll have a completely different group of psychiatrists that are uh, of a completely different political persuasion that will then be commenting on the psychological health of that
2: person.
5: Very true. So it's going to be a Pandora's box open, right? right? So if we decide to break that rule that I am not allowed to make a professional comment about a person that I have not consensually examined and I don't have their consent or an uh, order from the legal authorities to announce their diagnosis or whatever professional opinion I have about them, because uh, to be fair, a lot of psychiatrists who have been commenting about the current president mentioned that they are not diagnosing, they are just making professional comments, hmm. which to me and to, to the APA doesn't make a difference. Both yeah. pro- any professional comment is uh, has to follow the ethical rules of medical practice. Uh, but when this becomes a tradition, of course, three years from now, a few psychiatrists from the other side of the aisle may come out and just uh, make a diagnosis about the other candidate. Mm-hmm. and. It's, it will become a huge mess in the business of uh, in the politics. And then, if I can make a diagnosis about the president, why can't I make a diagnosis about my boss, about mm-hmm. celebrity, about I don't know, about my neighbor, about the people I don't like, or about the people I like, right?
3: And, and then so, we and then we turn into what we saw with uh, the White House communication director Anthony Scarmucci, when he said when he threw out. I guess, kind of uh, fleetingly, he threw out a, a called his enemy a paranoid schizophrenic. So then we're then we're throwing out terms without any real. I mean, it really it just seems to cheapen and lessen and 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 stigmatize mental health.
5: Yeah, and actually, uh, a colleague and I wrote a piece about uh, what Scaramucci did and using paranoid schizophrenic as an insult, besides all the other profanity and f words that he used to accuse. Uh, Price previous, and to my, to our surprise, most of the media outlets and uh, medical professional communities were insensitive to using a diagnosis of 1% of the U.S. population as an insult. And, uh, well, well, he he basically did an undignified approach of an uninformed person, but when it comes from a professional psychiatrist, it's going to be more... Uh, I mean, I would see that psychiatrists being more ethical and uh, less uh, emotionally involved in uh, making such comments, but at the same time, yeah, it's going to make the stigma. And the thing is that... uh, When emotions are highly charged, people are subject to uh, stereotyping, right? They can divide division groups. And one of the things that is happening in this political sphere is that a lot of emotions are involved and there is division. It's us and them, us and the others. Mm. And when you stereotype, this stereotyping can happen to psychiatrists and psychiatric business. Like a lot of people may uh, see most of psychiatrists or a lot of psychiatrists with a bunch of... uh, liberals who are making, uh, who are using their profession to push their political agenda, right? Mm-hmm. Not that I'm claiming that is what is happening, but a lot of people, let's say, like a third of this, uh, the, the based on the recent polls, a third of this uh, country are supporting the current president. How would they feel about psychiatry? Right. A person, a super conservative supporter of Trump who is living in a rural area has been dealing and arguing with uh, teachers of their kid that hey, your kid for ADHD needs to see a psychiatrist, and now, how would that person feel about taking their kids to this? How would they feel about seeing their own psychiatrist? How would they feel about, how would that affect their compliance and adherence to their treatment? We have come a very rocky path in the field of psychiatry to show to people that we have real illnesses of the brain that are treatable and we can help a lot. And in reality, we can help a lot. We can change lives of people and their families. And what's my first intention for getting involved here is advocacy for my field and for my patients and protect them.
3: Yeah, no, I think it's great. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Arash Joffenbach, who is a board-certified psychiatrist from Wayne State University, and he's helping us understand why psychiatrists should not be involved in politics, as far as diagnosing people, as far as, uh, you know, putting out, a, they, they would say they're not diagnosing as much as they're saying they have a duty to warn. But rush, is this, is the mental health uh, world different than the physical health world? When when Hillary Clinton had a health issue in her election um, and collapsed, and they put her in a van, we had every doctor in the world commenting on it, um, and you know coming out and and trying to create diagnoses as well. Is 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 mental health more sensitive than physical health? I mean, and is it more acceptable? Do you think there will be a day in the future that that will be just as common? Um, for mental health diagnoses to happen just like we and and we and worry about the mental health as much as we worry about the physical health of a presidential candidate or president
5: so uh, i 'm an academic psychiatrist, and besides treating patients, I do research, and interestingly, my research is neuroscience and brain research hmm. so to me, a physical health and mental health are not different they 're the same thing brain is part of the body right actually We are researching genetics, we are researching inflammation, all the areas that are involved in physical health are involved in our research of the brain. So in that sense, I don't see a difference between mental health and physical health. When it comes to commenting about, I I still do not think even uh, any physician, in the the example of Hillary Clinton, would make a diagnosis without having examined the person. It is irrelevant and unethical to make a... you may be able to say, hey, it didn't seem something is scary, right? Yeah. But you cannot make a diagnosis about that person. But they would when comment and say
3: – they would say What's something that? like, Arash, they would say something like, well, I mean, it does seem to fit some of the traits of the diagnosis of X. You know what I mean? Like they – they do oh, yeah, it yeah, yeah. they do it broad enough that she I mean you know uh, a weakness in the legs neurological neuropathy blah, blah blah they they throw out a bunch of terms that say those are yeah. conditions that could be diagnosed as such but i guess part of it is furthering the discussion about someone's health when you haven't discuss, you haven't met with them
5: and honestly i cannot i well yeah just some rant some uh Potential assumptions of this could be in the category of whatever illness is different than making a, uh, a, making a clear ju- And the other thing is that when it comes to the mental, I don't actually know how is it gonna help. Let's hmm. let's let's imagine that we are talking about a person who may have a mental illness and is dangerous. What would I don't understand how putting a label on a behavior from a psychiatrist may change it? I mean, the behaviors that they are referring to are behaviors that are open to and visible by every person. Mm-hmm. All the pe- uh, <clears throat> uh, you, you just uh, open the TV and all the political pundits are making all the comments. These are not things that, are, that require professional psychiatric training to say, hey, I think this person sometimes lies or is irrelevant or the experiences or whatever they're looking at. Right these are not the conditions that need to and, and me putting a label on it thing's it's not going to change and i 'm actually very uh eager to see how much of the opinions these uh comments from psychiatrists may change about the president or about the politics, I'm more worried that they might change the people's thinkings about us as a professor. because yeah. before this so during the heat of the debates of the election i I, I see patients every day, I see like. 30, 40 patients a week. My patients would come. I would have one patient coming in super excited that, hey, now that I'm not depressed anymore, I have the energy and I can go campaign for Trump. And right after that, another patient would come and be complaining about how terrible of a candidate uh, Donald Trump is. So they both felt, saw me as a neutral, reliable, trustworthy person to come and share their emotions because it's about them, right? Right. That clinical encounter is a very sensitive relationship which is about the patient and not about me. But let's say it becomes a tradition that psychiatrists become part of the politics. Then the patient before coming to me has to think, what is my political standing and what I may be thinking. Oh, interesting, yeah. relationship is already super complicated. We have this concept of transference which is the patients who in the relationship may transfer feelings and emotions from other relationships onto their therapist. You're Purely have there that. Adding, this, like, and adding politics is going to make a big mess for us.
3: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and yeah, you don't want to compl- or, or complicate even more the relationship where now they need to identify. I wonder if Arash is a Democrat or a Republican. You know, I just want you to be a professional. I just want you to be Thanks. really good at what you do.
5: Exactly. And when you are a physician, and, and that's very good that people see us like that. All, and it, it was a very interesting experience for me because during the election time and after election, this is a very emotional year politically. Yeah, People come into my clinic, to my office, and talk to me about the politics. Hmm. and it's, it's interesting. They don't even ask what I think. What is my stance? What is my view? Yeah, And my job is not there to change their political view to that of mine. No, my job there is to help them think and see what is best for them and how they can live a happier life.
1: I think The that's other risk true. is
5: when, when psychiatrists get involved, especially with the history of the stigma of psychiatrists and all these like evil psychiatrists depicted in the movies and the history, right? Right. Like uh, flying over the coco's nest. <laughs> so uh, then... Uh, there, the minds of some people, well, the, the psychiatrists may be heroes who are now coming out and trying to support their ideology. In minds of some other people, on the other side of the of the psychiatrists, are now be becoming evil forces of politics, right? Mm. And then, so basically, seen as big brothers who now want to be involved to say who can or cannot do what. But more, more, uh. I predict actually the more likely outcome would be uh, discrediting us, right? Yeah, no right. That we are, yeah we are not reliable scientific sources.
3: Um, I can't remember his name. It's interesting. Uh, this just came to my mind. Um, one of the top pundits on um, on Fox News is a past psychiatrist um, who uh, was a practicing psychiatrist, MD and then gave up his practice and got into political um journalism basically and he's I one you're
5: talking about Charles Krauthammer Charles Krauthammer right? yeah yeah
3: and so it's 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 interesting but you almost and this is maybe what some of the psychiatrists that are putting themselves out there need to decide is do you want to be a medical professional or do you want to be a pundit do you want to be a commentator um and and then maybe draw the line because it seems like what you're saying too doctors need to also protect their industry as far as the credibility and the ethical code of being a a true medical doctor. And that may not always jibe when somebody's asking you to make
5: sensational news. Yeah, so so, uh, the issue of the First Amendment, everybody has the right to speech, right? Right. So as a person, as a citizen, as a non-professional citizen, I personally, Feel very comfortable and free to make all political comments that I want to make. Yeah, and when I'm talking to my friends and anyone, that's because that's my right as a person. But when you when I wear my psychiatrist hat, then I have to follow the code of the uh, dress, right? The code of the hat that I'm wearing. right. And, right. Uh, and thinking about advocacy for my field and for the patients. And the whole idea is that even if uh, even if uh, I really also do not believe that these motions are going to make anyone's changes. Like yesterday, I think there was a hearing at the Congress, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
5: I would be super excited to see how many Republicans went to that meeting and how many Republican conservatives changed their minds about the president. Right. So basically, I think these kind of motions, like a lot of other uh, behaviors uh, in politics, would make a group of people who already are on your side cheer for you and the other side will not like what you're doing. And uh, I and my colleagues and the current presidents and people involved in politics will come and go. What remains and is sacred to me is the, the, my profession and the, the rights of those with mental illness. Again, we don't need to make a diagnosis for the person. Everybody knows that previous behavior predicts future behavior. Whatever they have seen of this president or anyone else in the past is going to predict for how they will behave in the future.
3: That's exactly right, Arash. Thank you, and uh, appreciate your willingness to come on and talk to us uh, about this topic. Really, I think it's important. It's an important topic as we start to discuss and see more mental health issues out there. Arash Javanbach is his name again, uh, board-certified psychiatrist from Wayne State University. We will continue doing what we can on this program, folks, to keep you informed and help you be the good in the world.
4: Ready to go in, coach? Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner.
3: Play ball! Play ball! You know, um, the more every story, every headline we seem to hear about the big headlines that come out almost monthly will be somebody with a mental health issue doing something extreme. Uh, a mass shooting, um, you know, driving their car, some over, you know, over and, and, and hitting people, some aggressive, you know, situation where they walk into a workplace and shoot or fire. Domestic violence issues and it, it, mental health is a very real issue, and so um, the idea of what we were talking about with po- politicizing mental health talk is. It's just not going to work. It's not good. If people are truly worried about President Trump's mental health, then um, then great. Democrats go, I guess, have your meeting and bring in a Yale psychiatrist to talk about it. That's never met him and never but can, I guess, predict supposedly based on never having really officially diagnosed him. but more importantly, if if people are worried about it, it ought to be the people around the president that would worry about it and let them bring in their psychiatrist if that's an issue. Now, but what about the health of the country? OK, well, if it ever got there, like uh, Arash was saying, it's going to be obvious. The, the behaviors will become even more and more and more obvious, and you will start to see um, even more and more signs that some intervention would need to be made. More importantly, though, I think the bigger issue of all of this is that we can't stigmatize mental health. You can't call people crazy or nuts um, because the minute you're doing that, you're, you're stigmatizing an issue. You can't make jokes about. Um, anxiety and depression and PTSD and uh, bipolar and throw out words like he's a schizophrenic or he's bipolar and just be careful with the language. And it's not about political correctness. It's really not. What it's about is trying to, in some way, normalize the fact that people have mental health issues. And if we can normalize some of this, then we might be able to bring some of these people out of the shadows that need the intervention and need the help but won't get it because it's been so stigmatized. It's hard for people to uh to come out and admit uh their their um their pain and their problems. So if we want to decrease some of these other headlines and and have mental health reporting a little easier to do and a little easier for other people to go and, uh, you know, for the for the wellness of the community to be able to report on people with mental health issues, then we have to learn to do it in a more respectful way, I think. And it doesn't mean this isn't about political correctness. I mean, I know a lot of people would love to make it into that argument. Some of it is just about decency and respect, right? It's about – if not, this becomes the next um, – this just becomes the next plague. This becomes the next um, – kind of scarlet letter that people have to wear the mental health letter uh, that you're depressed or that you're anxious or that you're bipolar and the words we like to just build this label that we can throw on people so we can, I guess, dehumanize them. But wouldn't it be better to just make them human and then make the circle a little bigger to let these humans in and then let's get them the help they need. Let's get them the help they need. Uh, powerful, powerful insights, I think, for all of us as we're trying to make this world a little better. We will continue the journey straight ahead. We'll be talking about uh, some of the, the data about the health of humans in the, on, in, the, in the country. What's going on in one part of the country? Who gets more sleep? Who gets less sleep? Who's healthier in which way? Straight ahead on the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, folks. I, I guess we're calling it a health, uh, a health segment. Segment
4: report analysis,
3: whatever you want to
4: call so, it. What is it? Fitbit, the company that yeah. makes those wrist trackers that you see people wearing. They know a lot of data about how we sleep, when we sleep, where we, you know, not necessarily where we sleep, but they kind of know where we sleep too, at least regions of the country. So uh, the company released data collected from six billion hours of sleep information. Wow. Yeesh. So it's pretty, you know, it's pretty boring in, in a very generic way. Yeah, it's but that's pretty some precise great data. So here are the key facts they found. Women sleep on average six hours and 50 minutes a night, 25 minutes longer than men. That a girl. But they're also 40 percent more likely to suffer from insomnia. So they probably need more sleep. Hmm. neither group gets anywhere close to the recommended eight hours wow so that's their, their big finding women also get about 10 minutes more REM sleep than men do every night a gap that widens after age 50 really it gets worse when you're 20 you're getting half an hour more deep sleep a night than when you're 70 oh bummer so as you get older your sleep gets worse the average american bedtime what do you think that is the average American bedtime I would say is 11:30. For so,
3: adults or for kids?
0: Adult.
4: People wearing Fitbits. Mm. not no, the kid bit fit Fitbit's not as popular. Uh 10:30, <laughs> 11:30. <1030. laughs> it's 11:21. <1121. gasps> yeah. 11:21 p.m. across the nation when that hits, that's when the majority of people go to bed. Interesting. Northerners go to bed 5 minutes earlier than southerners. Okay. Those on the East Coast stay up seven minutes later on average than those on the West Coast. See, they, I always thought they stayed up a lot later. Yeah, and they wake up five minutes earlier. At a, at
3: a boy, there you East, go, East Coasters.
4: Coast. Meanwhile, those in the northern U.S. go to bed five minutes earlier than those in the South huh. and wake up earlier also. Just some weird tricks. Early to bed, early to rise. You might go to bed at 11 p.m. on weeknights, but stay up after midnight on the weekends. Oh, yeah. I do That's that constantly. True. Yeah. But they say the Fitbit data shows that your sleep suffers as a result. If your bedtime varies by two hours over the week, you'll average a half hour of sleep a night less than someone whose bedtime varies by only 30 minutes. Man, so you got to be consistent. Blasted! And I'm never. I was super late on the weekends. I've been trying melatonin. It's mainly out of defiance of having to get up so early every day for this yeah. job. Yep. And then I'm maybe tired coming in. By the out. way, when
3: you were doing this segment... Oh, Jeff fell asleep. He caught a few winks.
4: He was actually yawning. Yeah. Jeff's good at, like, vertical, just, like, quick micro-naps. Yeah. Now, have you noticed that? Yeah. The balance, it's amazing. It is amazing. He's like a horse. He may sway just a little bit back and forth, but, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. Until he does the head bob. Uh. Once he
3: does the head bob, it throws off his total equilibrium. (laughs) Oh, well, we'll wake up Jeff in a bit. uh, But uh, we're going to continue the journey, folks. So much to cover. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, Love stronger and sleep better. This uh, We're here to serve. We'll be back.
6: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
6: Follow
4: Dr. Matt on Twitter.
1: At Dr. Matt Show.
4: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
4: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU
5: Radio.
3: Good morning, friends, and happy Friday to you. Yay! You made it your week. Some of you it was a shorter week, but uh, yeah,
4: I woke up this morning and went, "It's over already." I can't believe it's Friday. I feel like I got here on Wednesday, woo! Which I did. And our studio audience loves it. Yeah, they're, Relax. Pu- they're pumped. They're
3: pumped up. Holy cow! It's uh, this January and February are very busy time for me. Brilliant. Really? So it, it, I don't look well. One forward. is the month of love. Yeah, so exactly. you got to fix it.
0: True. Groundhog Day comes in February. Yeah.
3: yeah. Also, the month of love. I mean. It's a big day for you. A lot you. <laughs> of people feel like their marriage is Groundhog Day. Yeah, I know. but they shouldn't. Oh. Uh, today we've got a lot to cover. We'll be talking about ten practices for choosing joy. Mm. Mm. Now, did you hear Terry just went? Do you mean like the cynical cle- on the cleaner joy? No, no, no. The movie joy. How to how to choose a good movie? joy no, in life. Good mob. Right. <laughs> Sorry, you guys. I think are missing it. <laughs> it's um, some you know. Joy is just this ability that you can go feel peace and happy and content with your life. So sit on the couch, watch TV, feel good. Yeah, but that would maybe be like numbing out and oh. not actually choosing to enjoy it.: No, life. I chose to watch that show. It's, it's a good point. made me happy. Yeah.
0: I think, I think you also I'm... choose to ignore your children too. Oh, I and think... I
3: include myself in that at times. Yeah. yeah. But see, when you're my age, you don't want to do that anymore.
4: You tell us all the time. You wish you just enjoy the fact that your kids just go away and you never see them. No, 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 no. I don't
3: enjoy the fact. I do. I just that's the kind of natural man in me. It is ironic, though, that at your age, as you've made a decision, I'm gonna I'm gonna
0: start paying more attention to my kids. Now they are paying less attention to you. Exactly. Mm.
3: And then though, like last night, you then go visit your child and your grandchild, and have pancakes. For dinner. Mm, for dinner. It's awesome. It was such a great and then you're just like, I love giving attention to my grandchild. And you're thinking, why didn't I enjoy that as much with my children? True. It's really messed up. Mm. It's so messed up. So um we will we'll be talking about that. We got we gotta find joy, guys. And Terry, you gotta be less cynical about it. Okay. Or you can just go read the Wolf book. Fire and fury,
4: and just well, cuddle up to Trump for the next one. One other byproduct of this is I think it's encouraging a lot of people to read. People don't read as much as Do you they think have. President Trump will read this? No. I no. think someone may tell him some uh, some highlights, yeah. maybe some bullet points. He'll so watch all rage. the news. He'll yeah. watch Fox News talk about it. It is interesting as you watch uh, reporters are reading this book and like new things come out and you're like, oh, did you see this? Oh, did you see what they said? <laughs> can just... you imagine
0: a staffer being assigned to sit down and read that and just kind of snickering all the way through like,
3: oh, yeah,
1: I
0: <laughs>
4: well, I that
3: totally that happened. that's so true. Well, I-,
4: I told you about the one yesterday where one staffer was charged with – reading the constitution to the president uh, and yeah. they got to about the fourth amendment before trump told uh, them to knock it off now that's in the book did how, it happen how many amendments are there <laughs> poor guy poor guy and they said he did the thing where he put his hands on his face and you start at the forehead and then you pull your fingers down and you kind of pull your eyes and your cheeks like oh my gosh what's going on he's just Boring. so exasperated <laughs> yeah. so yeah it's pretty funny now oh, you funny. could see where that's plausible No, right. Looking at what we've seen of the president, you hear that you're like, "Yeah, I could believe that," but did it happen? I don't know. And people would, his supporters would say, "Hey, I didn't hire him
3: to know the (laughs) amendments of the Constitution." I
0: just think I think part of that comes from having an entire career of always being on the go and not really.
4: Having too much time for things of that nature, no, yeah, he's building buildings. Buildings. he's busy, and it goes back to the way he said he'd manage was he would he would get the best people exactly, and that's how he ran his company. He always had the best Smart. people, and they dele- he delegated things to the point where I don't know if he did much best. now the best people are turning on him, yeah, and writing books, and the
3: best people would be those that know the amendments <laughs> you'd hope <laughs> we'll see. Uh, so uh, so much to cover there. <laughs> Poor, it, it, I would hate to have a book written about me. Oh, this is brutal. Yeah, my book would be really really boring. Would it? Oh yeah.
4: Yeah. He sits in his office with the door shut. That's right. And he stares at the computer. And mm-hmm. it might be Netflix. I can sleep with my eyes open. Yeah, that's good. Mm. I'm really
3: getting good at it, except they're drying out. Uh, let's get to the headlines, Terry. What else should we be focused on?
4: President Trump took to Twitter late Thursday to rage at former chief strategist Steve Bannon and Michael Wolff, the author of the new book that's out uh, on the Trump campaign. Trump, and uh, on Thursday, slammed the phony book, claiming it's full of lies, misrepresentations, and sources that don't exist. Look at this guy's past and watch what happened to him and watch what happens to him and Sloppy Steve, he said. The president's remarks come after his lawyers reportedly tried to halt the book's release with a cease and desist letter accusing Wolf and the book's publisher of actual malice, which is really hard to prove. Yeah. Actual malice. The letter backfired, however. The publisher bumped up the book's release and uh, due to unprecedented demand, it went from like 51,000 on the Amazon book list to number one. And crazy. Uh, and the Wolf, Mr. Wolf, is yep. saying thank you, President, yes. for boosting our sales. <laughs> Appreciate you for the, 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 the endorsement there. North and South Korea have agreed to hold, uh, hold official talks next week for the first time in more than two years after uh, South Korea or North Korea took uh, South Korea up on the offer to sit down for dialogue. South Korea's unification ministry announced they have a department of unification. They really want to unify this, this whole peninsula. They want they, yeah. all the people together. Let's have peace. As you talked about, there's families that have been separated right? oh, for decades. Can imagine? So they announced new, the news early this morning, saying officials from both sides would meet in a border village to discuss the upcoming Winter Olympics. South Korea wants North Korea to send a team. Interesting, yeah, to One,
3: come, come compete uni- on Unify, peninsula. let's try, maybe
4: yeah. this is a way they can begin a dialogue They probably won't launch any missiles while their team's yeah. competing Everyone probably will live through
3: this is, is this meeting just about the Olympics or is this about other peace issues? Uh,
4: they want to start with the Olympics and see where it, it goes Because they call it the Peace House is where they're meeting yes. Which is right on the border, it's right in the demilitarized zone They want to start with the Olympics and see where it goes Oh good, there's many- this is great And the US is not involved because someone keeps talking about buttons on his desk.
3: Well, but, or is it, should we thank President
1: Trump?
4: Because finally they're talking. He did tweet out, he goes, all my, all my, uh, you know, the things he's been saying has probably driven these two to negotiate. That's, that's kind of his approach. So he'll
3: take credit for it. The right. two
4: sides will also discuss how to improve overall ties after a year of heightened tensions. North Korea reportedly agreed to the talks after the U.S. and South Korea delayed the annual joint military exercise, a frequent source of hostility between the rival Koreas because mainly they're practicing in case North Korea invades. Yeah. That kind of gets people ticked off. Interesting. Yeah. Other news. The apple world. Inc. Do yeah. we have an apple sound? There we go. They, on Thursday, announced that all Mac systems, iPhones, and iPads are affected by the chip security flaws that could allow hackers to steal data. Researchers had sounded the alarm over the vulnerabilities a day earlier, warning that nearly all computing devices on the planet are affected. Oh, boy. Yeah, Uh, The the company has stressed that the two flaws, dubbed Meltdown and Spectre, we talked about these yesterday, have not yet resulted in any known breaches. The Spectre bug affects nearly all computer chips made in the last decade, while Meltdown is limited to Intel Corporation chips. Apple said recent software updates should mitigate the vulnerabilities caused by Meltdown and a fix to be rolled out for the Safari web browser in the coming days should protect against the, the Spectre flaw. Experts say the fixes are likely to slow down a computer's performance. However. Wow! So, seeing as you're sitting here on your Computer. laptop here, that you know, that could be a concern for you as you mm-hmm. try to, you know, it, sa- you safeguard yourself. Oh,
3: everybody, as, update, update. Everyone's <laughs> saying update, update. Right, but some of our professionals here are saying not quite yet. You yeah. just got
4: yours beefed up, right? Yeah, mine. I got a beefed update. Mm, Slim Jim? hmm So, mm. Snap into it. So, uh, yeah, the, the security flaw is big, but, I mean, at the same time, who's going to hack into my computer? Why would they want to? Well, why wouldn't they want to? Do you want to see cute pictures of my children? I mean, yeah, they're pretty cute, but... Mm. well, there's other things on there. There's uh, Wolfenstein, it's a fun video game, but it's available online, you can go (laughs) play that. Plus all the news you find. (laughs) Oh, there's news, but I put that in my Google folder, so you can't really get that on my computer. Um, Other news, at least six people were killed in North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia due to the intense winter storm that hit the East Coast. In North Carolina, three people were killed, including two men whose pickup truck slid off the road into a creek Wednesday night. Wow. Uh, one person died in South Carolina, two others in Virginia. A 75-year-old man was killed when he was hit by a snowplow. A young girl was killed while sledding down a driveway. Ah, ooh. Just crazy stuff. So the bomb cyclone, because it's fast drop in atmospheric pressure, was k- akin to a winter hurricane. The massive storm system also caused the cancellation of more than 4,000 flights to and from uh, the U.S. Heavy snow, high winds are reported along the East Coast. JFK was closed down for a while. Oh,
3: my heavens. It was
4: reopened... Yeah. the next morning. But I mean, it's just caused complete chaos. You see the pictures. We talked about on Boston Snapchat flooded, watching it. You wa- on Snapchat, you can go into the maps and yeah. you go into the different areas, and people are just recording this chaos. But did you
3: notice it was the most boring? I thought because yeah. everything was people. They were yeah. every video was a person standing at their window looking down on a street in New York. They're like wow, yeah. look at all the snow with no one out there. They're not going outside. It's no cold. No. And then and then the rest of them were all dog walkers.
4: <laughs> Unless it's Florida, and then everyone's <laughs> out doing uh, like snow angels because they're like snow in Florida. Snow Oh, in Florida! <laughs> By the That's way, great crazy. time to walk your dog because you don't have to take a little baggie with you. It'll just get blown away. It won't get blown away. Just shove a little shove snow them. over <laughs> on top of it and move on. Snow plowed away. we will find it when it melts. Ugh. Finally, the AP reports temperatures in part of South Florida were below 40 degrees Thursday. Right? Yeah. Well cold enough to freeze iguanas, which aren't native to the area. They'll oh. fall out of the trees. They end up in areas where your cars are parked. In park, you know, parking lots, areas where they're cold, where uh, they're no. cold stunned. So they're not dead. They're just, because they're cold-blooded, their body temperature has dropped to a point oh. where they just get into this sort of cold paralysis. Oh, yeah. So they move really slow, yeah. but they're just dropping out of trees. Sloth-like. So the They're like Jeff local, in the morning when he's really tired. <laughs> so they're still able to breathe. They're still able to do bodily functions just very slow. The uh, the zoologist they talked to adds the iguanos will receive will revive and get more active if temperatures increase to you know raise once they warm up then they'll be able to so move again. So you could
3: again. be parked under a tree and the next thing you know an iguana falls on your hood. Yeah, and then you just watch it slowly.
4: So they had, roll they had over. two days of sub forty five degree weather. Oh wow! That that if if it goes for two days the iguanos will likely die of pneumonia. Oh really? Yeah. So if it's just one day, okay, they'll, they'll warm back up the next day. Bring and be fine. your iguanas in, folks. Well, but it's Florida, so people are just released all these into the I'd wild. Grab. So
3: when you see an iguana, you got to get it inside, put it by the heater vent, keep <laughs> the cat away from it. You yeah. know what? Iguana save them. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> um. So let's start. Let's start. A new movement. Okay, iguana save iguanas. Sounds good to me. Uh, no, it doesn't sound. <laughs> it seems kind of wordy. Um, bring the if you find an iguana. Like, this is the key. If it's a slow, slow iguana. Yeah, you have to see if it's slow first. Whose bodily functions are happening? Maybe at ten percent of normal. <laughs> I'm going to guess if
4: you could catch the iguana without much effort. Yeah, you're probably safe to bring it inside. Get it inside, warm it up. Mm-hmm. I'd wear gloves. Maybe some hot chocolate. Just so you don't well, yeah. create bigger problems for them later. Right. You don't want to give them E. coli. It, true, because if you ate any romaine lettuce, you right. might. Don't feed places. him any romaine lettuce. Yeah, I don't know if Florida was on the list, but you never know.
3: Yeah. Boy,
4: now even iguanas are having a hard time. Yeah. Trump. <laughs> Trump <laughs> but that would be, I mean all of a sudden you're walking by and you just hear something hit a car it's just like thunk, thunk. Whoa, what was that what just was that? an iguana Don't falling
3: iguanas it. it's like Sharknado yeah this is Iguanado there you go scary <laughs> that's so scary alright let's get to the uh, empty news headlines Jeffrey anything going on we should be paying attention to the, the empty, empty news games. team first on the
0: scene fifth on facts so I asked you during the break to think about stories or rumors during your child, or that that you were told in your childhood that you believed.
3: Oh well, so I thought for sure we would go to war with Russia. Oh, how far back are you going? Well, I, that was my childhood, okay, seventies. Okay, that uh, there was going to be a nuclear holocaust, basically. Really? And so I, now I wasn't from the duck and cover era. Okay. But it was still my parents were so that's what they would worry about, and yeah. that you know I'd have to go to war because of Vietnam. So just prepare to go to war. So as a kid, I'd grow up thinking I don't want to go to war. I don't want to be a soldier. Yeah. So that was worrisome. Okay, so
0: the first story really has nothing to do with this topic, but it's what spurred this ah, this discussion. Okay. So I remember when I was a kid. I was a huge fan of the film Jurassic Park. In really? fact, saw it three times in the theater. This was Man. back in 94. I was 11 years old. And I was so anticipating the sequel to Jurassic Park. And there was a friend of mine at school who, in what I thought at the time was great detail, described this trailer that he had seen uh, about uh, that included a character that uh, you know you look it seemed like they perished during the first film yeah but according to him they were very much alive and there was a scene in this trailer where this character was going around and stomping on dinosaur eggs and my jaw dropped and i was just so excited and i was like no way i thought for sure he was killed off on the first one it was not as tr- it was not oh, true at all not real story. totally false Full so floor. i don't and i don't know why these rumors start or why people get a rise out of that yeah. sort of thing yeah Another thing that I remember hearing when the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland was coming out was that they were going to fly all of the Jones families from the state of Indiana to Disneyland. They were going to pay for them to come over and ride the ride. Not necessarily true, but I did some research online and actually... They did allow all the Jones families that came to the park that day to be the first people to ride. ride it, and it just so happens that the first family to the first Jones family to ride on the ride was a Jones or was from Indiana oh, interesting. so yeah, yeah, little rumors like that that uh, they, that seem real, yeah, so again, this story has nothing to do with rumors, but it, it made me think of uh, the Indiana Jones story that I just shared with you. So there are the residents of the rural town, by the way, one of the most difficult words to say. Rural. Rural.
3: Rural. Rural. Rural.
0: Residents of the rural town of Scotland, Connecticut, are becoming lords and ladies in the United (laughs) Kingdom country of the same name. Really? The Scottish Land Preservation Company Highland Titles said Tuesday it's gifting all 1,694 residents one square foot... Oh. of land on its nature reserve in Glencoe Wood, Scotland. How nice! So the residents will get courtesy titles of Lord or Lady of Glencoe and instructions on how to visit their plots. The company sells forest land ranging from one square foot to 1000 square feet so they can't be developed. Scotland First selectman Dan Syme says the Connecticut town was settled by a Scotsman named Isaac Magoon in 1700. Isaac ce-
3: McGoon.
0: <laughs> say it with a Scottish accent though. I can't though. Okay. That's the problem. And celebrates that heritage by hosting an annual Highland Festival.
3: This is this is great news. That's really cool cuz you could go you could go there and then stand on your one your square. Yeah. I
0: mean, if, if things just don't work there. out and you get evicted, yeah. you can just sleep standing right. up in Scotland. You could live in Scotland. Uh, in your, on your property. Yeah. You could live there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have to stand. And I, I'd be willing to bet that if you banded together with a few of your neighbors, mm-hmm. they would be willing to uh, gift you their square foot.
3: Oh, then you could stand on two squares. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, that'd be easy. One foot in each square foot.
3: If 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 they're adjacent. Yes. That's the problem. What if you're well, or friend...
0: you if you're really good at twister, then
3: <laughs> <Anyways>. Scottish <laughs> Twister.
0: Uh here's another one that is is just awesome, I think. Do you remember uh, speaking of your childhood? Yeah. Did you
3: ever dig holes for no apparent reason as a kid? No. But I would what? dig I would dig a hole to then play cars in. Okay. Yeah. Or like but, I mean, drive like, my tonka car. You go to the through. beach, you dig a hole. Yeah. It's just something you yeah. do. You yeah. dig holes at the beach. At the right? beach, I would, yeah.
0: Right. So I lived uh, in the
3: mountains, though.
0: Here's a fully grown man that dug a hole oh. for really apparently no reason, and he climbed into the hole and then refused to get out. Oh, boy. Man in a hole. So uh, this happened in the U.K. The the man's neighbor, Dominic Denny, witnessed the strange incident on Tuesday and confirmed the man had dug the hole himself. It started at about 4 a.m. this morning when there was a lot of shouting and screaming coming from the house opposite me. He said the young man's family was outside trying to get him back in the house. Help didn't arrive until around 7 a.m., but when it did come, it was impressive. Mr. Denny said 10 different emergency service team members attended the location, including a specialist team from the local fire and rescue service. He added, they called the specialist in, and they put together a kind of crane over the hole, and they tried to go down and get him. The man was eventually coaxed out of the hole, which he had been digging for weeks but there was no explanation for why he made it in the first place. He, he literally dug himself into a hole. Why do you think? What would uh, what would convince a man, or what would make He's him a mole. dig a hole and climb in there and refuse to get out? He's a mole. He's a mole. Mm-hmm. Was he trying to dig a hole to China? Something that a lot of kids Maybe. tried to do when they yeah. were younger.
3: Yeah, I I was just happy digging a hole to Japan. Yeah, it's just hard. Did you ever get there? No. Now, were you I, ever close? No, because I would get to clay, and once you get to the clay level, oh. then you got to really question yourself. I do you don't really think, want this hole. <laughs> I don't think as a kid there was re-
0: really ever any way for you to gauge how close you were to China.
3: Yeah, but if you could get your body into the hole, you've done something amazing, <laughs> right? <laughs> this guy obviously didn't. He had he he was onto something.
0: <gasps> I just thought of a way what? to increase the value. And of your square foot in Scotland. What? Dig, Dig a, hole. a hole in that square foot. You literally could double the size of your, of your square yes! foot. We've got it. But from Scotland, if you're digging a hole, where are you digging a hole to? It's not China. No. Uh,
3: probably Venezuela. Mm. I don't know.
0: Then you could have uh, real estate in two countries. Mm.
3: But then you'd have to get a passport. See? That's a good point. Then the government gets involved. Here we go controlling our lives ah folks we will continue the journey straight ahead we're going to talk about 10 practices for choosing joy this is the matt townsend show With the rising interest in uh, positive psychology and mindful living, it is becoming clearer that living a joyful life is a choice. Practices for Choosing Joyful Living range from gratitude to mindfulness. A few months uh, back, I spoke with Deborah Heise, uh, who's the editorial director of Live Happy magazine and the author of uh, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. I began the interview by asking why people don't choose joy, but instead focus on the misery that may exist in their life.
6: Yeah, well, at Live Happy, one of our, our main mission really is to get people to understand they can choose to be happier. That it's not something that's pre-programmed for you. It's not a uh, not you're not truly a victim of your environment. You can actually do things to increase your overall happiness and your overall life satisfaction. You know, improve your well-being, and these are things that you can do every day. And most people don't know it. Um, they don't they don't understand that uh, their mental health is as much in their control as their physical health is to a certain you know to a yeah. certain extent.
3: How did you get into this? this topic of Live Happy? Why did, of all the things you could have focused your life on, why this topic?
6: Well, I was working at uh, Success Magazine, uh, the current version of Success. I was the founding editor-in-chief of that. And Success Magazine is really a personal development magazine with a small business wrapper on it. And while we were working there, um, we came across, while I was working there, I came across this positive psychology movement, which is really a whole bunch of researchers and, um, you know, psychologists that were out there trying to figure out how to use psychology to make well people thrive, give well people the ability to thrive rather than focusing on um, making sick people well, which is what, you know, psychology had really focused on up until that point. And it was really fascinating because I came across all this science and this scientific evidence that showed that you could do things to improve your mental health, your overall well-being and improve your chance of thriving. Um, and that to me really hit a chord because so much of personal development is really just a a bunch of people who are, you know, telling you I did this and so this happened or I did that and so this happened. You got to set goals. You got to, but here was the science backing up why some of that stuff works and also, um, really focusing on living the life you want rather than living the life, you know, success, um, success you know, a life of monetary success or a life of business success, but really living a life where you could sit down and go, you know what, I have a happy life. And and, and that really struck a chord with me. It's who I am as a person, and um, live happy was born out of that.
3: Hmm. I mean, isn't that basic stuff, right? Yet the the positive psychologist – basically had to buck the trend, because historically we were always looking at the abnormal psychological behavior instead of what healthy people were doing. What What are some of the traits that you've found um, and some of the ten practices for choosing joy?
6: Well, you know, a, a couple of them that I – I mean, there, there's ten, obviously, but yeah. a couple of them that speak really strongly to me are um, gratitude, which is really we, – we overlook as, – as as human beings, we tend to look at what's next. You know we reach that goal and it feels good for about thirty seconds, and then we go, "Well, what's next? What am I going to do next because it wears off um and we're we're that way about everything in our lives it's not we we quit focusing on what we have and we start focusing on what we don't have mm. so for me, the practice of gratitude really is taking the time every day to recognize the good things that you have in life um and it's really important uh to do that because that's what gives you a sense of satisfaction right yeah but but it's also what really, to me, gratitude leads you to be a kinder, um, more loving person as well because you're grateful for what you're – you're grateful. Um, so there's simple practices like writing down three things you're grateful for every day. Be specific. Make them unique. You can't just write down my kids every single day. But if you do that for a, for a month, your, your mindset changes. You start looking at what you have rather than looking at what you're missing. Mm. And for me, that, that's, that's a really uh, powerful one. Uh, another one that's really powerful for me is uh, mindfulness. And this was something that I really had to work on. It's the act of being present. You know, a lot of people hear mindfulness and they think meditation, and that's certainly part of it. But, um, you know, I had the pleasure of hearing Tom Raff speak last summer. Yeah. and, and, and he's a Fantastic guy. Yeah, he's been, been
3: on been been the, been. the show two or three times. Don't you love him?
6: I do. I do. He's yeah. a fantastic guy. But he said this thing that really resonated with me. He said the perhaps over the next 10 years the single biggest challenge we may face as individuals is simply paying attention to the person sitting across from us.
1: Oh. So true.
6: <laughs> we are so distracted by yeah. everything. It's nuts. And you know, a practice of mindfulness isn't just meditation, it's a practice of being present. And you know, I have three small children. I have I have a job with, with meetings, I have things that I want to do in life, vacations I want to take, and it 's really easy to get distracted by everything. but you know when I go to my son 's hockey game and watch him play hockey, I put my phone away and I watch him play hockey because that 's a moment of connection between the two of us, huh. and being present in that is very different than just being there, um, and the same is true for a business meeting. you know put your phone on a table in a business meeting, and, and people think that you 're distracted. It doesn't matter whether it's off or not.
3: Oh, it's <laughs> you know, so true.
6: Just, just the acting. Pra- so for me, those are two of the practices that I've really started to employ in my own life that have made a difference for me.
3: And it's, it's, it really is. Um, it's almost like, and I, I guess this is appropriate, because technology is driving us into this state of, you know, maybe more efficient, what's next, kind of constantly on. Mentality. So the idea that mindfulness would, would appear um, now is maybe the antidote to, to some of the tech push. But the other thing that you brought up about gratitude is so powerful because if I'm constantly just in the go mode to get the next thing, I will never find peace because I never enjoy the, 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 the win. I never enjoy what I do have.
6: And and he, and here's the crazy thing: most people don't understand. It's not just about the way you feel; it's actually about your health. People who are grateful experience better sleep, have better immunity, and lower blood pressure mm. than than less less grateful counterparts, if if you know normalized for everything else. I mean, it's about your health as well as for everything, as well as uh, you know how you feel.
3: Yeah, yeah, because we do. We throw it out to be that this is just an emotional. Benefit, but physiologically, you're gonna you're gonna be better, feel healthier, sleep better, have I mean joy. How about that? Just just be able to watch your kid play hockey and not have to you know answer about work. Right, exactly.
6: The other uh, you know the other thing um, you know when we talk about happiness and you talk about health, I mean the the evidence is getting to the point where it's overwhelming. Um. You know, they did a study of seven-year-olds that had a positive outlook in life versus seven-year-olds who didn't. 30 years later, the seven-year-olds that had a positive attitude at seven experienced less physical, um, you know, physical uh, damage, less illness. They were healthier. You know, so a positive attitude at the age of seven can dictate how healthy you are at the age of 40.
3: Are we born with that or... I mean, I, I know we could probably train it up, teach it up uh, with our children, which is probably we ought to, you know, you know inoculate them for, from all of the other problems. Do you, are, or are some people just born more grateful?
6: Well, you know, the, the thing of it is happiness has a genetic component. And uh, there's this um, survey that uh, Sonia Lubomarski did a bunch of years ago that people point at as, as, as statistics. And it's not quite statistics. Uh, when I talked to her, she made that really clear. But generally, fifty percent of how happy you are is dictated by your genetics. Some of us just have higher set points for happiness or for you know for positive attitude. Just like many of us have higher set points for athletic ability. You know, I, I could I could try and do professional golf for my whole life. I'd never make it. I'm just not that coordinated. Yeah. Darn it. <laughs> but darn it. But <laughs> I if I if I practice golf every day, I get better. Right. So if only 50% of it is dictated by your, your set point, you can still get better. You can still be happier. You can still have a more positive attitude. You can still have better relationships than you have right now. Because the other 50%, um, about 10% of its environment, most people think it's more. Most people think that they're victims of their environment. And certainly if you live in a war zone, you know, if you live in Syria right now, yes, the environment probably has a much stronger um, place, you know, effect on your happiness. But for those of us who live here, only about 10% of its environment, which means the other 40% is made up of choices that we make, things that we choose to do or not do every day. Hmm.
3: That's why I love bringing it up. The more we talk about it, the more, I mean, I guess we're going to end up pushing it into the front of our minds, hopefully do something about it. Talk to us about um, this idea. One of your chapters is about the science behind the wisdom of meaning.
6: Yeah. Meaning, I think, is what we're all after. Uh, feeling that our life matters. I mean, it. you know, <laughs> one, of the great, uh, one of the great things about meaning is that this is something that everybody understands. They want to feel like they're part of something larger than themselves. Right. They want to feel like their life has meaning. But the reality is that it literally may be a matter of life and death for you if you're older. I know that seems a bit extreme. Wow. Scary. But in, in one study of elderly people, those who felt their lives were rich in meaning had a fifty seven percent less hazard of dying than those that who felt their lives had no meaning. In other words, just having your having the feeling that you have meaning keeps you healthier, keeps you engaged. And and connected to that, really connected to meaning is is the is, is connection. You know, we have to feel you know, there are two different chapters in the book. One is on connection. We're talking about connection with other people. And the other is on meaning. But to me, they're so intertwined, they're all almost inseparable.
3: Hmm. I love that. I mean, there's some research that's come out of BYU that, uh, you know, if you yeah, if you are disconnected, if you feel like you don't have a social group, I mean, it's like smoking, I can't remember the number, like three or four packs of cigarettes a month.
6: Right. Exactly. To your health yeah there's a there's a longitudinal study that was done for on on three hundred men so this is a long term study and it turns out that um being connected to other people may be the only thing that matters having meaningful relationships because mm. even if they had money health, and good careers, they weren't happy unless they had strong relationships with other people wow. um it It really is if you take that out if you take out strong connection you don't you don't have the happiness. You don't have the reason, the drive, for getting up every day. You don't have the why, and if you don't have the why, you don't have the meaning. Um, I think a lot of people think uh, meaning and purpose are the same thing, but a lot of people have purpose. Right. Um, it's you know, my purpose is to raise good children. If you if you're if you're a stay-at-home mom, well, that's your purpose. But it's the meaning you derive from that, the why you feel it's important to do that that really is what brings you your happiness and brings you your joy.
3: Do you get so if I, if I have um if I have something I love doing or I have a purpose of improving relationships for people uh that I come in contact with you're saying it's it's it might be more important than just knowing what you want to do it's more important to get down to the actual why behind it.
6: Yes absolutely. And for, for people in, you know, my job, I have the best job in the world, you know, yeah. in my day. day, looking at this stuff about how to, how to make people thrive. I mean, who, who and learning about it and being able to apply to my own life, who would not want this job, but let's say your job is something else. Maybe your job is um, answering the phone and being a customer service agent. Why you do that job? What's the meaning behind it? What's the, you know, your purpose is maybe to make money for your family, which is great. But if you can find meaning in what you're doing, you're going to be much happier um, in that job that you spend a third of your week at or, you know, it, it, and half your, more than half your waking hours at. For example, if you feel that by delivering excellent customer service, you're answering the phone, you're helping people and you feel good because you're actually helping people, so you've got a meaning there then you're much more likely to enjoy your job and much more likely to be happier. Hmm. Or maybe maybe you build something with your hands, and if you can picture the person who purchases that piece of furniture that you build and the joy that they're going to get having it in their home, you feel like you're improving families. It's really figuring out what is the meaning behind how you're spending your time.
3: That is like – that. that could probably help anybody that is maybe stuck in a job where they – they know it's they know it's important what they do. Like I'm thinking of like maybe a medical doctor. They know what it's important and it makes a good income, but they're not they've kind of lost their joy. They've lost their energy. Maybe what they could do is start digging deeper into figuring out what's what is it that makes you feel joy in this job and then get back to that.
6: Yeah, there's a great there's there's the book is filled with not only with the science, by the way. It's filled with stories of people who are Putting these things into practice, yeah, and, and there's this uh, great story about a, a gentleman um, named Alistair Mook, who was a folk singer, and he sang in adult bars all the time, and that's what he did, and he, and he was lucky, and he, he was fortunate to be able to play music and make a living at it. But he had twin daughters, and one of them got cancer, and um, she's fine. she recovered. she mm. was five when she got cancer. But they spent a lot of time in hotel uh, in, in hospital rooms. And so what he ended up doing was starting to write music with his daughter. And they wrote music, and they put it on a CD, and then that CD is now distributed to other families who have children with cancer, and they're songs about really dealing with what's going on. There's a great song called When I'm Bald, you know, uh, and it's got a great video with it. But he will tell you that his purpose was to play music, but he didn't find his meaning and why he was doing it, until he could put his music to something larger. And now he plays in front of kids more than in front of adults and enjoys it. Still mm. plays music, still yeah. still does what he was put on earth to do, still has his purpose. But his meaning really is um, attached to helping these families go through what his family went through and, and putting perspective in that and giving those children a voice to their emotions.
3: Yeah. I mean, again, um, it's almost like it appeared, right? They they were already in it starting to do it not maybe fully understanding why but and and then they can then they can figure out why
6: yeah and i think i think a lot of us find our purpose easier than our meaning
1: mm-hmm.
6: you know i I've, I've been in magazines and and publishing for a long time and i've enjoyed it but um you know this was the fir- this was the first job i personally had where i feel like okay this is really me this is what this is what i'm here to do it's still publishing, still editing, but now it's doing something that I understand how it connects to what the changes I want to make in the world.
3: Right. It's uh, it also says and almost shows us that creativity is is a critical part of this. You've got to you've got to almost be a cre- a, cre- a creative or just a creator of your own happiness and life instead of just kind of a bystander.
6: Right. Um, we have a chapter on creativity in the book as well. And, you know, the big thing about creativity is most people don't think of themselves as creative. Uh, but we were all kids once, and kids are phenomenally creative, right? I've got a four-year-old. She, she can talk to herself and create worlds all day, <laughs> you know, right. out, of, out of two blocks and, 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 and one toy, you know, <laughs> whatever is going on. We all have creativity. We forget to exercise it. And it is really important that we exercise our creativity, not only because it boosts our happiness, but because it actually um, enhances our ability to think outside the box. It enhances our ability to really think about why we're doing something, to be creative problem solvers. And you know, when we are creative, um, our brain releases five neurochemicals that enhance our performance and improve our moods. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, you know, there's a connection that we make when we're creative when we you know we spend too much time being adults there's a, a a point where when we're creative we really do enhance our lives and we forget that because we've got too much that we're supposed to do we forget to take time to do the things that really are different
3: right it's um. it, it really is I guess in the end th- this is your life right this is everybody has a life to live and you can you can do as much with it as, or as little with it as you want, regardless of how much you actually have.
6: Absolutely. Um, it, it, and here's the thing. We all tend to be caught up, at least in this country, we all tend to be caught up in trying to have what everybody else tells us is important. One of the great things about happiness is that's not what it's about. It's not it's about finding out what's meaningful to you and right. having that. Um, it 's not about you know uh, lots of money it 's not about the best job in the world you know it you, you may be perfectly happy to 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 work at a grocery store and go home and paint or work at a grocery store because you know that it feeds your kids and then you have great picnics on the weekends or you go hiking. What is it that you want out of life that 's important um, to you not? to the world at large because we all we are all different. We're all created differently. Mm-hmm. Uh to, to to assume that we all want the same thing is is uh it's kind of the way the media has painted us, but it's not actually true.
3: No. And it's um and, and I mean even just looking through the the magazines on the rack, there's so many things that you might see that might be tempting and interesting to you but also don't necessarily resonate with your inner core, right? With this inner you that so it's this weird balance of getting the real you out into the real world
6: right and, and finding that congruence in your own life because ultimately for me um happiness is is congruence that you're authentic that mm. you are an authentic you and um the rest of us aren't very good at being other people you know yeah. <laughs> we're only good at being ourselves so who who are we authentically that's so I, true I want to mention a couple things yeah. that I think are really important that are in the book. Okay. Uh, the first one is resilience. Um, and this is really important because this has to do with overcoming failure. Many people don't understand that they can build their resilience, that they can become more resilient to, to negative things. We all have bad things that happen to us. Um, but building your resilience or building your grit, it's its difficult, but it's something that many people um, – don't focus on. Right. Uh, but, it, it, you know, some of the best stories in the book, some of the best stories in life are about people who've overcome. You really can um, build your resilience through strong social connections, building a positive attitude and helping others, actually helping others overcome things, um, helps you build your own resilience. Yeah. But, and also remembering that you, you overcame something to get where you are, right? We've all had challenges. Reflecting on where you've been victorious in the past allows you to move forward um, with a more optimistic outlook. But the other one that um, I would be really remiss if I overlooked is the power of giving back. And we're not talking about you know giving a little bit of money here or doing this. We're actually talking about if we can engage in giving something to someone else, which could be as simple as a compliment. You know, you're standing in line with somebody, and you go, "Hey, those are great shoes." That might be the nicest thing they've heard all day. Right? Or you buy, or you get a coworker a cup of coffee while you're at the coffee machine. These small acts of kindness actually give us a rush of endorphins, equivalent to what happens when we're the recipient of a gift. It's 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 strange, but we actually get more out of giving. I, I think everybody's always heard that platitude. It's better to give than to receive. Right. Well, the science shows us it is better to give than it is to receive.
3: There's a better high get giving than getting.
6: Absolutely, without yeah. a doubt. And it's simple stuff, smiling at strangers. I mean, this is not difficult. This is something, if we can all remember to do this as often as possible during the day, um, we really do kind of create a positive atmosphere. We create positivity around us because we're building positive connections with people. Yeah. And. We talked about that earlier and how important that is, but even positive connections with someone who gets your coffee in the morning or who, or who you know uh, whatever that is uh, or, or you know holds the door open for you those are all positive connections, and all of that fills up your day with positivity and will enable you to to, to share that more and live a happier life in general
3: mm, deborah it's great uh, I mean really it, again, I think what's now happening is science is able to now validate. A lot of these things we've always believed, but th- this is more than just platitudes, right? This is health, and this is true happiness. Deborah Heiss is her name. Go to the website, livehappy.com. Also look up the book, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy. Folks, just imagine if you just lived two of the practices, just two, it'll change your life, folks. It's um, This isn't just blowing smoke. Life is filled with uh, opportunities to um, improve your own happiness and find joy. Life is good, um, even if you're not always feeling that. Stick with us, folks. We'll take a break. Come back, wrap up the second hour of The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Come back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, as uh, we start to wrap up for, uh, th- this is my final show of the week. And then we turn the reins over to Jeffrey Liam Simpson for screen cleaning. And this is the theme to screen cleaning coming up. This screen is the, cleaning this is the screen cleaning theme. We thought it'd be fun to talk about the ratings, which are abysmal for the NFL. They're tanking. Right. The, the
4: NFL's probably going to have to close its doors after such horrible... Well, not quite. Oh. They still sell like jerseys and okay, yeah. hot dogs and stuff at the right. stadium, so they 're okay, but that was like that was a lot of the talk this year, right was there's, you know players are kneeling, so no one's watching football anymore. Nope. everyone hates football, yeah, nobody people are kneeling well, well, is it possible and
0: concussions is it possible that they're kneeling because they're tired?
4: No hmm. maybe I kneel when i 'm tired, me too so, overall, the NFL yeah, year over year, NFL is the number one viewed program in America, right. You, you look at the top-viewed programs of all time, they're all Super Bowls. But straight on down, right? It's because so, Oprah's gone. Well, they were beating Oprah, too. Okay. Uh, the league's TV viewership dropped roughly 10% over uh, from last year. The premier game of the week, NBC Sunday Night Football, was down 10% from the se- uh, yeah. over the season. ESPN's Monday Night Football down 6%, and averages of Sunday afternoon games on Fox and CBS were down 9% and 11% respectively, according to Nielsen data that came out this week. A number of factors, uh, President Trump's public spat with the league, players kneeling, his uh, the president repeatedly cited the anthem protests as the reason for the NFL's flagging ratings on the field, Uh, This is my more of the the issue here, is on the field, big-name players like Aaron Rodgers, J.J. Watt, Odell Beckham, Andrew Luck were all injured at some point during the season. Ezekiel Elliott, the running back for the Dallas Cowboys, was suspended for several weeks, which could have negatively impact one of the league's most popular teams. The The Dallas Cowboys show up, people watch. Their running backs out, mm, not yeah. so good a team. He, it's also a domestic violence issue that he's dealing with in court. And and the NFL's fighting that and then there's also concussions. <laughs> yeah. You got people that are just getting violently hit. You want to watch oh, yeah. that? Some people are tired of seeing that. The good news though, the NFL is still the biggest ratings driver on TV. So for the season, You got about an 8% ratings drop for the NFL overall. But it says, of the top 10 most watched telecasts of last year, seven of them were NFL events, including the Super Bowl, which drew 111.3 million viewers. yeah. 33 of the top 50 programs were NFL games. So 33 of the top 50 were NFL games. Uh, NBC's Sunday Night Football was still the number one watched program last year, averaging more than 18 million viewers a game. This actually just sounds like worse news for television. Television's dropping. TV overall had less viewers.
3: And And
4: the best stuff on TV apparently is football and, of course, The Bachelor. Now they're saying the league may see more declines because popular teams like the Cowboys, Packers, and Giants are not part of the playoffs. Oh, yeah. Right? That's true. I guess that the big, the big markets. But that doesn't seem to matter because people will tune in for the playoffs. Yeah, You'll see it. The numbers will be huge. And they'll have me because that's this weekend and I'm going to watch the games. Well, and you have no life except for sports. It makes me happy. We <laughs> talked about joy. Yeah, yeah. And it's, joy for me at times is watching a television program. And? Hitting my child with a pool noodle. And Marvel Comics. And And Marvel Comics. E. coli. And And getting getting E. coli Coli from from my
3: romaine lettuce. From your salad, the same salad you eat every day. Right. And you
4: have eaten for 40 years. Do you think the lettuce I have in my fridge right now could be contaminated? I would hope so. Man. Because we want good radio. We
3: think our ratings will skyrocket. If if I get E. coli. Not a big case of E. coli. Just a little itty bitty case of E. coli. Okay. Okay. Me love the E. coli virus.
0: Are you going to go see a movie this weekend?
3: Uh, no. Wow. I have a wedding. That was a long... uh could have just got straight to the note. I was going for dramatic effect. So, coming up on
0: the show next. Screen yes. cleaning, straight ahead. Cole Wissinger, yes. Rod Gustafson, Ooh. and myself, we will be discussing our top five favorite films from 2017. And one of them, I'm sure, is The Greatest Showman, which is
3: the greatest film of the year.
4: Baywatch.
0: That movie, uh, The Greatest Showman, is mentioned in the discussion, but it is not on any of the lists. I will tell you that much. You people. I will also tell you that for Rod Gustafson, who's a a movie critic, he sees all these movies. He has all the passes. So he is uh, choosing films that were released in 2017, whereas Cole and I are including films that we saw in 2017, yeah. so not necessarily released in well, 2017. Yeah. Well, the bad
3: thing is you guys only saw together about nine films.
0: Mm. Cole and I, yeah.
3: I actually have not seen a film with Cole. No, I mean together. You saw five. Oh, Cole saw I four. see what you mean. There's nine films. Mm. Uh, Rod actually saw seventy films. Mm. Oh, so you saw more than that. So Rod's probably going to come up with a variety of uh, of shows that nobody would ever watch.
0: And I will give you another hint. One of the films on my list yeah. was mentioned in this discussion that we've been having. Baywatch. I will not ah, tell you guy what loves it is. Baywatch.
4: Just loves the Baywatch. Can't get enough of the Rock. Well, it's, I think it's the slow motion
3: running. Is that what it is? He does it down the hall all yeah. the time. Okay, so that's straight ahead. On Screen Cleaning, you won't want to miss it. Jeffrey Liam Simpson, we give him the reins. He takes over, and it uh, it just gives you a good uh, kickoff to the weekend. Thanks for being with us, folks. I'll be back again Monday with the rest of the gang. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Make it a great weekend.
0: Welcome to Screen Cleaning. We've been away for a couple of weeks enjoying the holidays, but we are back. And uh you know as we do each year we make new goals we try to be better people in the next year but uh we also try to look back and just review the year in general and that's what we're going to do here on the show today. Today is going to be our best of 2017 year and specifically the best of in the movie category in 2017. And I'm joined here today by Cole Wissinger, as well as Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. And we are going to share our top five films from 2017. Now, I need to explain the criteria that went into choosing these films.
2: Because you cheated.
0: Oh, I cheated. Come on now. Rod Gustafson is a film critic, so he sees pretty much everything that's released uh, theatrically. Whereas Cole and I don't see as many films in the theaters. So Cole and I are going to have films that we saw in the year 2017, but that were not necessarily released in 2017, whereas Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews is only going to choose films that were released in 2017. Whew, hope that wasn't confusing. I understood you. Okay, that's all that really matters, right? Rod Gustafson, welcome to Screen Cleaning on The
7: Matt Townsend Show. Hello. Happy New Year. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah. So I have uh, given all three of us a very difficult task to try to rank and narrow down our top five picks from 2017. And we're not going to talk about any that we wouldn't normally talk about on this program, R-rated films, uh, films that we wouldn't feel good about recommending. Um, So we'll each share our top five picks and we'll throw in an honorable mention as well. And I'm predicting right now that at least a couple of my picks are really going to ruffle Cole's feathers. So I'm really interested to see what you guys have in mind. And uh, Cole, why don't we start with you? Then we'll go with Rod. Then we'll go with me.
2: Sounds good. And we haven't agreed all year long, Jeff. So why should we change? Exactly.
0: 2018. That's what makes our our friendship so great.
2: Is that we don't agree on anything. That's right. Common ground of not having common ground. <laughs> the fifth best movie that I saw this year was Jumanji, wow. the original with Robin Williams. Oh, you had never seen that mm-hmm. before? I had seen it before, but I got the opportunity to watch it with my little cousin for the first time. She, oh. She's eight years old, and over the summer, I was pulling out a lot of the movies that I loved to watch when I was that age, and she was so opposed to seeing it, she just didn't... she she thought it was an old movie she didn't want to get involved with it but she's seen rv she knows who robin williams is sure um (laughs) because that's the movie generally that you're introduced to robin williams um on right it's rv
0: if you've listened to the show before you know the lesson that i've learned from showing jumanji to children that are way too young So watch out. But she
2: loved it. Uh, I I got to see the light in her eyes when she she heard the poetry of the game, and she got into the adventure, and she got into the charm that Robin Williams can bring, not just in a a goofy physical comedy role, but in a a heavy, nice role that he has in that movie that carries through the whole film. I thought it would tie into the fact that there is a sequel coming. We knew about it in the summer, and that's kind of what brought it up, but... I love the original Jumanji. It's my number five movie. I wonder if we're gonna
0: see the new Jumanji on anybody's list here today. I not wonder, on mine, I'll say that. Not
1: much.
6: on mine.
7: <laughs> Awkward silence. <laughs> and cool, you make me feel so old. I mean Mrs. Doubtfire, that was my introduction. Oh, yes. So actually more commandy, of course, but yeah, you know, oh I go back way too far. Yes.
0: So Rod, what's your number five?
7: Well, number five for me probably this is always so hard for me to do. It depends on my mood what number five is, but it probably goodbye, Christopher Robin. Now I'm not wow. I didn't know that we could go way, way back, Cole, so so I'm trying to stick to twenty seventeen. Oh um, I will too. but goodbye <laughs> Goodbye, Christopher Robin. I really enjoyed. Um, I thought that this was a wonderful film. That it, And, you know, I, I always have to put a shout out to parents out there. A little warning for parents. This is a movie for adults, even though it's a movie about the guy that made Winnie the Pooh. But it's a, it kind of moves in a direction that I was not expecting. And it's really about... The perils of having a child, your child, become a celebrity. And it also addresses uh, Alan Alexander Milne, A.A. A. Milne, of course, who created the character of Winnie the Pooh. Um, he comes home from the First World War and has what they called back then shell shock and today PTSD. And just the difficulties that he has to go through with his life. He was a successful playwright. And now, because of the mental repercussions of being in the war, he can't write anything. So he has to move to the country. His wife isn't very happy. And they have this little boy, Christopher Robin, of course, who over the years suddenly becomes a national worldwide celebrity. And so that presents additional PTSD, if you would, upon the family. So interesting film.
0: Mm, that's one that I did not see. I don't feel like it was really in very many theaters here, so I never really got the chance for that one.
7: Yeah, I've got, I've got a few Dusty Corner movies on my list this year, <laughs> the ones that maybe we haven't talked about as much, so that's one of them.
0: So my number five uh, is a film that I believe was the most polarizing film of 2017. I'm not talking about Mother, this film... Took the crown on the most polarizing film, I believe, and that is Star Wars: The Last Jedi. Now, I, I mentioned it was polarizing. I I'm convinced that there are certain people that were not going to like this movie, no matter what was in the movie, because a complaint for a lot of people for The Force Awakens was that oh, well, they just played it safe. They just they just remade Episode Four. But uh, these are also the same people that are complaining. Well. Well, this one is, is too different. So it's like, what do you want? Do you want it to be different or do you want it to be the same? You can't. So I have perspective
2: now. The last time we talked about this movie, we kept it safe. It's been um, it's been weeks now that it's been out. Are we yes. comfortable to talk about spoilers today? Well, I don't.
0: I'm not going to mention any spoilers in mine. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the plot, then shame on you at this point. It's but basically, the Resistance, the good guys, are on the run from the bad guys pretty much the whole movie. Meanwhile, Ray uh, is is trying to. Well, she does find Luke Skywalker. She's trying to convince him to come back to help the Resistance fight the bad guys. Okay. And uh, there, I can't remember the last time i have been to a film where there were at least six moments in the film where the audience burst out into cheers. So that was huge. It was the most thrilling experience, one of the most thrilling experiences I've had at the theaters. My number two is probably going to take the most thrilling experience title. But uh, my number five, Star Wars, The Last Jedi.
1: I
2: loved it. Hmm.
1: And
2: I think... A lot of the the criticisms that come up of it being too different aren't so much that the plot hasn't been something that we've seen before, but that the characters and the developments that have been made throughout eight movies, including Rogue One, and now this is the ninth kind of whatever, um, were just not held to. There was no respect for the lore and for the even the expanded universe that Disney's done away with, all the nerdy things, whatever. But... The differences aren't so much that, oh, it's a plot we haven't seen before. It's that they weren't true. The differences weren't true to the characters that we've come to know and love and the lore and the understanding of the force that we understand it as.
0: Which is the main reason why you did not like the film Thor Ragnarok, Cole. Another film that I thoroughly (laughs) enjoyed this year. But anyway,
2: Cole, what's your number four? All right, so my number four movie that I saw this year is actually a movie that came out just at the end of last year. It is called Arrival with Amy Adams. I still have not seen that. Oh, it is Mm. fantastic, and it was one of my favorite movies of last year. I keep it kind of down at four because I reserved one, two, and three for true 2017 releases Mm. but i wanted to include arrival when we get to talk about movies that we saw this year because i did and it was great tells the story of amy adams as a linguistics professor at a university somewhere that is pulled up by the military to come talk to aliens that have landed on earth she's there to make first contact and try to understand their language and how they speak and we come to know that the way they speak and the way all of us speak really does tell more about us as people and how we interact with the whole world.
0: That sounds like a great film. It's sitting there on my Amazon Prime watch list. I just still have not gotten around to it. Comes highly mm-hmm. recommended. Mm-hmm. Huh, okay. Yes. Find me. <laughs> so, Rod, your number four would be...
7: Well, my number four, we're back into the dusty corners again. I'm going to give you guys a strange one. This one is a co-production between Ireland, Canada, and honest, that's not why it's on my list, and Luxembourg. And this is an animation called The Breadwinner. And uh, you you may have to dig around to find this one. Uh, and it probably will be on video here pretty soon that you can watch at home. But what I really enjoy about the breadwinner, is there are some topical things that are very difficult to introduce to younger audiences. And in this case, the topic is... The, the terror that people are living under in many of these regimes in other parts of the world, namely in this case living in Afghanistan under the rule of the Taliban, and this young girl who has to pretend that she's a boy in order to bring home food for her family, and which sounds like a really scary and depressing thing, and frankly it is, but what I really, really appreciated about this movie, it's an animation, This is not Pixar-level animation. In fact, you know, at first glance, you may say, well, it just looks a little primitive by today's terms, Mm. but just has incredible voice talent, amazing story, and they deliberately have made choices to... Um, uh, to not dive into explicit violence and that type of thing. And this is an animation, so it's a little strange saying this, but the camera always cuts away before something really bad and gory is going to happen, but you're still on the edge of your seat. This is not what I call a drop-off and shop animation. In other words, parents, this is not something that you leave the kids with like Cars 3 and you go wander off and get something done. (laughs) But watching this with your kids, especially, you know, I'd say 12 and over, um, can really provide some great conversation and uh, and can help younger people understand some of the things that are happening in other parts of the world. So this one's a serious one. This one's, a, you know, again, being parent previews. We really appreciate it when people make movies about serious topics that don't have to be bathed in blood and gore, and yet we still are able to understand the peril that these people are in. So that's mm. the breadwinner.
0: So my number four uh, does not have blood and gore, but it is animated and it does deal with death. And Mm -hmm. this film, in my opinion, is the best Pixar film since Toy Story 3, and it is Coco, which I just saw for the second time over the Christmas break. And I cried even harder the second time around. So if you're not familiar with the story, it's about this little boy who is forbidden to play music. His family has held this grudge for many years. Uh, His great, great grandfather left the family as a musician to pursue his dreams. And so there's been no music allowed since. Well, uh, Due to a a mistake on his part, he ends up in the land of the dead and he is trying to make his way back while also uh, being allowed to play music because that's so much a part of who he is. And there's a scene toward the end of the film that uh, has a song in it that will most definitely be uh, nominated for Best Original Song, and if it doesn't win, I will cry again. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) uh, Yeah, and I, I was holding my son watching it the second time, and I was having to hold back not just the tears, but the very unmanly sounds that were just on the edge of coming out of my mouth and throat it was it's was kind of embarrassing but it was just as good the second time if not better that's my number four coco and when we return we are going to be sharing our number three and our number two picks this is the best of 2017 show here on screen cleaning we'll be right back Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is our best of 2017 show. Now, I, I, I need to explain the criteria for these picks. Cole and I uh, have not seen as many films in the theaters this year as our our guest Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews has. Therefore, he and I are choosing films that we have seen in 2017, whereas Rod is choosing films that were released in 2017. Boy, I hope that's not confusing. <laughs> yeah.
7: And that's that's how camarades movies are all these serious downer films, because quite frankly, for the most part, that was 2017. So, so
0: I, I will say that four of the five picks on my uh, list are very mainstream, and that is not the case with my number three pick. Uh, my number three pick is also not a film that was released in 2017, but when I saw it in 2017... It floored me. It absolutely floored me. I talked about how in Star Wars The Last Jedi, so many people's expectations were just shattered. This is a similar film in that you think it's going to go one way, and it really doesn't. And this will shatter your expectations. It's actually a foreign film. I rarely (laughs) watch a foreign film, so for it to be on my top five is kind of a big deal. It's a film called The Vanishing A man's girlfriend is abducted at the beginning of the film, and you actually, it changes direction mid-film. All of a sudden, you have this man who's just devastated by the abduction of his girlfriend. All of a sudden, it jumps forward a year or two, and he's still looking for her. And you get to see half the film from the perspective of of the villain, the man who abducted her. You get to see him practicing out all of his techniques, practicing out all of these different abductions that he's trying out. You get to see him fail as he's practicing. It's just so I mean You get to see him practicing with his family around a dinner table. They obviously don't know that they are helping him practice for an abduction, but it's just things that you would never see in a movie of this type. So there's humor in it. Again, not something you would definitely consider to be in a film about an abduction. but uh, And then the ending also does not go the way you think it will. It's called The Vanishing. Uh, you should definitely check it out. Again, as far as foreign films go and as far as films in general go, this is an excellent film and it's my number three pick. So, Rod, I think we're going to go to you next for your number three pick.
7: Sure, and this time I'm going to go mainstream. War for pl- the Planet of the Apes. I, uh, you know, the Planet of the Apes franchise, these three movies, and let me first say that I, I've never been a big fan of Planet of the Apes. Like, I mean, Aww. I remember wa- watching them on TV and the older films and whatnot. So I can say I've been a huge fan of them. But the new franchise has really been very good and I think very underrated. The quality of writing, the quality of acting – has been it has just been top notch, and Andy Circus um, playing the lead role of Caesar. I mean, this film I think should put terror into every Hollywood performer <laughs> that one day you're going to be 3D scanned and put on a hard drive somewhere, and they won't need you anymore. <laughs> and uh, and so it just incredible, incredible performance. And I thought, you know, it's got some timely messages to it as well. And looking at this complete, completely from a filmmaking perspective, when you think about it, it's really difficult to sell an audience on a movie where we need to, where we're supposed to have empathy for the monster, in this case the apes, and learn to grow a, a growing disgust towards the humans. And I don't want to give away the whole ending, but this ain't no happy movie. Nah. As they say about Sid who lives next door in, in Toy Story, uh, this movie does not have a very warm and happy ending if you're a human. But it's uh, still a very, very well done movie, and I think was underrated and mowed over by many of the Marvel superhero and DC comic movies. This one really stands out on its own.
0: Yeah. And Rod, I'm predicting if they never come up with an Oscar category for best vocal performance or best motion capture performance. Mm-hmm. I guarantee they will give Andy Serkis a lifetime achievement award for what he's done for film. Absolutely.
7: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. This,
2: that movie was just on the edge of my list and I am a huge fan of the whole Planet of the Apes franchise going back to the 60s movies with Charlton Heston and I mm. I love what they've done in the new ones as well and yeah, War for the Planet of the Apes was great. I am going to give the Warm and Fuzzies, though, for my number three pick, and that is Beauty and the Beast. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the 2017 the version. The 2017 version. My goodness. Version because I I was a huge fan of the original because it came out just the year before I was born, to reemphasize the fact that I am younger than both of you. But <laughs> but Beauty and the Beast was fantastic, and I think that the ways that they expanded the story and the things that they inserted into the new version that weren't in the cartoon were all to its benefit. The song Evermore by the Beast, as Belle is running back and to, to try to save her father... Is just a heart wrenching scene, and and I think a fantastic song. Um, all of the Beauty and the Beast, the way that they inserted a little bit more backstory, the way they explored a little bit more of the castle. I enjoyed the live action remake.
0: See, that's the rare film that I actually enjoyed it more the second time that I watched it. I will admit, but okay, that so my number two is this is the one that's really going to ruffle Cole's feathers. I just Bring know it. <laughs> and uh, it's it's from one of my favorite filmmakers, Christopher Nolan, and it's probably mm-hmm. going to be very prevalent in the awards, uh, so different awards shows this year. And it's Dunkirk. It's, uh, it's about the Allied soldiers from Belgium, the British Empire, and France that are surrounded by the German army, and they're evacuated during... Uh, World War a battle during World War II. This was the most thrilling experience I've had at the theater this year. I don't there I there were stretches of the film where I I recall that I wasn't breathing while watching mm-hmm. it. Uh I loved the soundtrack and the the very prevalent ticking clock that you hear. Um I am a huge fan of the different storylines. I I really enjoyed the Tom Hardy storyline, especially because I felt like I was watching Jaws with this German plane that he kept pursuing and then at times was pursuing him. The plane itself became a character in the film, and I I love that they didn't show any pilot in that plane. And the the thing that I love most about this and the thing that choked me up about this film was it highlighted... Humble heroes. And what I mean by that is there were people that were serving in the film that were doing so in a very quiet way. There wasn't a lot of fanfare. And I think those are the types of heroes that really ought to get some more attention. Not that they would want it, because then they wouldn't be the humble heroes that they are. But that's my number two pick, Dunkirk. And I imagine it's probably going to win some technical awards, but maybe not much else beyond that. But it'll certainly, certainly be nominated for a lot more than that.
2: It's a good hope. <laughs> I just it's it's tough for me to enjoy a movie where I'm bored to tears. Wow, for the entire thing. Wow,
7: really, really cool. Wow, oh, I, that that just blows me away. I'm in fact, I I had to make adjustments to my list because it, Dunkirk was tied with my next pick, but I thought Dunkirk was just incredible. The editing, the what I really loved was the sound design. How he worked with the audio in that movie was just amazing to me.
0: So wait, that's your number two pick?
7: No, my number oh, okay. two pick, actually, it, do you want it right now? Yes. <laughs> okay, here it is. It's tied right in there. It's Darkest Hour, the Winston Churchill Ooh. movie, which, um, which you know, is really, in fact, my in-laws were over last weekend, and they watched Dunkirk, and then they wanted to watch uh, Darkest Hour, so we did that one next. And uh, the two of them fit together very, very well because uh, each of them kind of reference the other in a way. But, uh, yeah, Darkest Hour, Gary Oldman in this movie playing Winston Churchill, it's just amazing. And this is one of those, it's kind of like, I don't know if you guys ever saw 13 Days about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes. This is kind of like the British equivalent of 13 Days and, and really is about this strange guy, Winston Churchill, who really was this crazy man suddenly running the country, (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, but um, <laughs> a little bit, I know, a little bit of a pause there. But how he really, and I'm not saying anything about what's happening today, but how he really was the man that was parachuted in to handle Hitler at that time. And uh, and just, it really is an interesting look at the, at that little period of history. And uh, this film is done very, very well. Of course, I'm sure there are probably some little revisionist history things going on there but in talking to a couple of people who really know their history well they've been very impressed with this movie and say it it follows pretty closely to many of the little facts and anecdotes that have been revealed over the years about what was happening in the back rooms of britain during this period
2: okay darkest hour is oldman the favorite performance you've seen this year rod
7: um. Yeah, he is. For me, he was. Yeah, I'm. I'm voting the, the Broadcast Film Critics Association Critics Choice Awards coming up here in a couple of weeks. Thanks for giving me a chance to get that plug in there. <laughs> there Perfect. Got. It yes, could be he's his year. My, <laughs> yes, that's right. He's got my vote for uh, for best actor. And and by the way, the awards January 11th <laughs> coming up. <laughs> coming and, right yeah, up. so Gary Oldman definitely is. Uh, I I just I thought this performance was incredible in the makeup that they have done on him is you will not like, I'm thinking, is that really him? It looks that good. It's incredible.
2: That's, that's great to hear. It's, I'm going to be seeing it probably this weekend, and so now I go into it with good expectations. Thank you, Rod. My number two pick is going to be slightly lower brow than the awards fodder that's been thrown out uh, previous <laughs> to it, because the second best movie of 2017 for me is Happy Death Day. Ah! <laughs> oh, yes, yes. I am a horror movie sucker. Every October, and we've talked about it uh, in October when we were doing it, I watch a horror movie every single day. Uh, This year, I went to the theaters a few times for the horror movies that were happening, and Happy Death Day was my favorite of the bunch. I, in addition to being a horror movie, I love the time loop concept uh, that people understand from Groundhog Day, but that has been implemented in so many different sci-fi TV shows and, and little nishy movies like that. But Happy Death Day perfectly combines this easy slasher concept of this college girl running away from a guy trying to kill her um, and the concept that you get in time loop movies where they have to relive the same day or the same chunk of time over and over again. So every time that she dies... She just wakes up again and gets to go do it again. And, and I was so happy.
7: You know what I appreciated about this movie? This is from a company called Bloomhouse Productions, and mm-hmm. they are starting to get known for being able to turn incredible dollars from very little money. Now, $4.8 million to make this film, which is lunch money in Hollywood. And uh, it did very, very well. And I was really impressed. I went in with it with Mr. Bad Attitude and came out thinking, wow, I got a lot of respect for that film.
0: You know, and it's inter- what's interesting about this film is there have been several time loop films made. And I think everybody was nervous after they saw Groundhog Day when uh, the Tom Cruise film Edge of mm-hmm. Tomorrow or Live, Die, Repeat came out because it seems like a formula that could very easily be done poorly. And that film blew me away. And I have to admit, although I probably didn't like this film as much as the two of you did, I thought they'd, again, they've done a good job with this formula when it could have gone so poorly.
2: And I'll parent yes. previews you a little bit too, Rod. This is a PG-13 horror movie, which you just don't get to see a lot of. They kept the blood yeah. to a minimum. There wasn't excessive violence or excessive sexuality, which you get a lot of times in in the gritty kind of horror that that happens a lot. And so this is. This is a cool introduction to a fun genre, and keeping it light and keeping it PG thirteen.
7: Sp- I agree. I, I even though the horror movie genre is not something I would seek out myself, I do respect when they can make them within the realm of if my sixteen year old wanted to go see it, it wouldn't. I, I would say, <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: Yeah. And speaking of that production company, I know we weren't really going to talk about these types of films, but they've had an amazing year for another for uh, another reason, which is a film that had about the same budget and made, Mm -hmm. oh goodness, hundreds of millions of dollars. Get out. But uh, that's a (laughs) film, they're just having a a terrific year. They really are. So uh, we're going to take another break. When we return, we're going to reveal our honorable mention picks and then drum roll, please. The top reveal of our number one picks for the best films that Cole and I have seen in 2017 and that was released in 2017. For Rod, this is Screen Cleaning. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning. This is our Best of 2017 show and we are down... ...to the big reveal of our number one picks. But before we get to those, each of us is going to have a chance to give one honorable mention. And I'm going to start off by giving my honorable mention. Rod mentioned a film that I have not seen. Part of the, the problem, or part of the reason I have not seen it is because it just wasn't really in a lot of theaters and still is not. That may change if it's nominated for a bunch of Oscars. But Rod mentioned his number two pick was Darkest Hour. It's one that I really want to see. My honorable mention is another film that did not get released in enough theaters. And I think this is a not only a huge oversight, but really a a, a major sin in my book. Because here you have this film that is about one of the greatest christmas stories if not the greatest christmas stories ever written uh and it was barely in theaters it was barely re- released in theaters we had to go way north to to go see it and the the theater that we saw it in was packed so clearly people wanted to see it and you would think being released right around christmas time and it being a movie about Christmas, that it would have gotten more coverage, and it certainly didn't. And for that reason, my honorable mention, even though it's like number 20 on my list for 2017, is a little film called The Man Who Invented Christmas. One of the things I really loved about this film is that it's, it's a really tough task to find new christmas films to enjoy that you can watch year after year the last one that i've seen that that we watch every year is elf which was released way back in 2003 so i'm happy to say this is a film that you can enjoy year after year the man who invented christmas starring dan stevens as charles dickens who's uh it 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 shows him kind of going through a rough patch in his career he's had a couple of flops and so he's really looking for a major hit and so he surprises publishers with how about a how about a ghost story for christmas which they were not very convinced would sell very well because i didn't know this and maybe i need to do some more research on this but in the film they make it sound like christmas was actually not a very big deal back then, or at least not in Great Britain. And another thing that I absolutely love about this film is that you get to see the role of Scrooge in a way that you've never seen it before. As he's starting to write these different characters, you get to see them kind of hang around Charles Dickens and, and kind of haunt him or bug him or inspire him at different times throughout the film. And Scrooge in this film is portrayed by Christopher Plummer, who's actually having a fantastic year. And I wouldn't be surprised if he got an Oscar nomination for another film that he's in, which actually was not a role that was supposed to go hit, go to him. And I'm talking, of course, about the film All the Money in the World, but that's a different story for a different time. So I love the portrayal of Scrooge. I love the way in which that portrayal is uh, presented. Just a a very good film that leaves you with the warm fuzzies by the end. And finally, a Christmas movie that we can enjoy year after year. The Man Who Invented Christmas is my honorable mention.
7: Now, I I am going to say something that could get me in big trouble. <laughs> I may never be on screen cleaning oh, again. Okay, okay. Now, The Man Who Invented Christmas, I absolutely agree with you. That movie made barely over $5 million. And I, I noticed this over and over. And there was another movie on my list. I mentioned The Breadwinner. It's going to be the same thing. This is an Irish-Canadian co-production, The Man Who Invented Christmas. And American movie theater's And distributors really haven't figured out foreign movies yet. Even foreign movies that have people speaking with British or Canadian accents, they haven't figured out yet, let alone ones with subtitles. And I don't get it. it. Like The Man Who Invented Christmas was fairly easy to get to in Canada. But I just can't figure out how foreign cinema can break into the United States without winning the best picture Oscar. And even then it has a difficult time. So there's my rant. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so another movie that almost made my list that that I watched at the beginning of 2017 while I was catching up on all my 2016 movies was an Irish film called Sing Street. Is this and your honorable mention? No, it's just on the foreign Sing. movie thread here. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I also watched it in 2017. And I thought it was amazing, even though it just came out last year. Um, But again, I I don't even remember it coming to any theaters, but it was amazing.
0: And totally overlooked Mm -hmm. at the awards, too. It had
2: the best original song of last year and didn't even get nominated for anything. The
0: Riddle of the Model, is that it? Uh, The Riddle of the Model. Drive it like you stole it. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, Cole, what is your uh, honorable mention?
2: My honorable mention. This year was not overlooked. It was in every theater in the world because millennials like me were ready to relive their childhood watching Power Rangers. On oh my goodness. Screen.
0: You just said that, right? I,
2: I didn't mishear
0: you there. Power Rangers okay. <laughs>
2: 2017. I grew up with Mighty Morphin Power Rangers to reemphasize I am the millennial of the group and it's fine by me because I got to hear a rock incorporated score version of Go! Go! Power Rangers as they all came out with the Megazord, ready to fight off against the the monsters that I grew up watching. I'm not embarrassed. I loved seeing My Childhood again on the screen.
0: Wow. Do you think there's going to be... Did it make enough money to
2: warrant the sequels, the many planned sequels they had? It made enough money. It certainly didn't get the reviews. (laughs) Ah. The... I don't know if it need. I mean, Transformers has gotten five different movies on terrible reviews, and so why can't Power Rangers? But also with
0: huge box office returns. It was okay. Well, I'm glad you liked it, Cole. So that's your honorable mention, Power Rangers from 2017. Okay, starring Brian Cranston, kind of,
2: and five (laughs) kids that are the actual Power Rangers. Yeah, yeah. All right, Rod.
7: Okay, I'm going to cheat. I've got two of them, but for, okay. and they couldn't be they couldn't be more different. But Cole, thank you so much because now the pressure is off when I say Boss Baby. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know we get so many of these, and again, parent previews. We we're really focused on the PG-13, PG, and those very rare G-rated movies, and so we see a lot of these animations come along, and some of them are just absolutely painful. But I got to admit, Boss Baby. I bought it and I don't buy many movies. (laughs) Um, I just thought Alec Baldwin was wonderful in this crazy little animation about a baby that comes to uh, clear up some problems that are happening in baby land, which is the which is the realm that within this movie that we live in prior to coming to Earth. Um, And uh, it's just a a really it's an interesting film because it covers a topic that I have been somewhat critical of as i look at what's happened in the last 10 to 20 years people are choosing to have dogs instead of babies and i couldn't believe it that is the premise of this movie why are people choosing to have dogs instead of babies and uh, i thought it was just a it's fun it's actually got a little bit of what i consider to be a deeper message to it and uh it's just it's a it's it's just one of those fun little animations that really went far beyond what I thought it would do. So that was one of my bonus picks. And, and seeing as I've got the floor, I'm going to cheat and squeeze in wait, another one of these. Wait a minute. Can sorry? I
0: can I uh, put in a word about Boss sure. Baby real quick? Yes. So although this appears uh, toward the bottom of my list for 2017, as we're watching it again with my kids on Netflix – There were a couple of things that I noticed this time around that I didn't that I actually very much appreciated. Um, First of all, I like the fact that in my my interpretation of the film is that none of what you're seeing over the course of the movie actually (laughs) is happening because they do hint at the fact that this boy, the older brother, has a very active imagination. So I view it through the lens of this is all just make believe Um, Now, a younger child watching it might not have that takeaway. But another thing I noticed that I didn't notice the first time around was I thought the score was absolutely delightful. And what it what it reminded me of was I when I uh, saw the end of it the second time around, uh, I, I felt like I was watching a film from maybe the 40s or 50s because it has that type of a high concept. And it had that type of a score, too. I thought this is the type of movie that if uh, back in the 40s or 50s would probably get made not as an animated film, but I could see this film existing in the 40s (laughs) or 50s. And for that reason, I very much appreciated it. Still, I kind of thought that this was a very poor film for animated films overall. And really. Poor year. Poor
2: year for animation. In general.
0: Yeah. A poor year for, for movies in general. But uh, I did appreciate those couple of things about the film.
7: Hmm. Well, I yeah, it, <laughs> it really – to me, it, I was surprised. And maybe it's one of those films – you know, I went in with low expectations, and it really shone above that. Um, the other one, speaking of animations, and when you say it's a poor year for animations, it's been a very different year for animations. And yeah. this one may be the one that oust Pixar. Um, and this is a film that's called Loving Vincent. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Again, it's a it's a foreign film. It's a UK-Polish production. But this is an animation. The entire animation is done in oil paintings. It is just visually stellar you in fact i had a hard time following the story because i was so distracted by the visuals but the um The story revolves around the the research that's been done on Vincent Van Gogh. And for years, it has been assumed that he took his own life. But recent evidence has been pointing otherwise. So it's a little bit of a murder mystery, um, but done in animation and uh, just an incredible visual. So if you're an animation geek, you have got to see this movie.
0: Does this star uh, Saoirse Ronan? Is she in it?
7: Uh, let me remember here. No, I don't think so. Oh, no, really? it's got, uh, Douglas Booth and, uh, I, I, I must admit a lot of people, Chris O'Dowd is in it, but it's got a lot of foreign actors that I am not. Oh, she is in it. I take it back. So she's this is a it. big year I'm going for her too. List. Yes.
0: Wow. Uh, we won't mention the other one that she's in that she'll probably get an Oscar nomination mm-hmm. for, but yes. she's having a big year too. Okay. So that's she your is. honorable mention. So, in this order, me, Cole, Rod, we are now going to reveal our number one picks. For Cole and me, it's going to be the films that we saw in 2017, but for Rod, it's going to be the film, a film that was released in 2017. Now, mine is very mainstream and did very well at the awards ceremony last year when it came out, and in fact, it was a December release, so it almost could have been... Uh, a 2017 release, Uh, but I didn't see it until maybe the 1st or 2nd of January of this year. And I think one of the reasons this film will be remembered is because of a little uh, snafu that was made at the Oscar ceremony. It is not the film that won Best Picture, although in my opinion, even though I didn't see the film that did win Best Picture, it should have been the Best Picture winner. Uh, It is La La Land. And what's interesting about that whole Oscar snafu thing is, in my opinion, of those two films, this will be the one that will be remembered more. Not only because of the Oscar snafu, but because it was just so many people saw it. Very few people saw the film uh, Moonlight when it came out anyway. I think it made $20 million, whereas La La Land made over $100 million. As far as music goes in a movie, it's it's tough to beat. And in fact, that you know, the music won Oscars. The director Damien Chazelle was the youngest best director uh Oscar winner ever. And it's one of those films that's very controversial in that a lot of people were not happy about the way it ended. I think it has one of the most beautiful endings in a film I've seen. Not only that, I think, had it been given the ending that a lot of people wanted to see, I think I would not have been talking about it two days later the way that I was when I saw it and enjoyed it with the with the ending that it actually ended up with. So I, for one, very much appreciate the end that it uh, had in the film. And the acting is top-notch. I'm okay with the fact that they're singing live, and so it's not pre-recorded and sounds perfect and auto-tuned. I I liked that it sounded more real. And as far as leads go, you can't ask for more charming leads than Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling. Emma Stone, of course, did win the Best Actress Oscar. And uh, in my opinion, this film should have won Best Picture. But it doesn't matter because it's just another example of a film that will outlive The awards that it did not win. And there are so many other films that the same could be said. Uh, You know, a lot of people Mm -hmm. consider, for instance, we talked about uh, Star Wars. uh, Empire Strikes Back didn't win any awards. And yet it outlived so many of the other films that did win awards the year that that was released. My number one pick for the films that I've seen in 2017, La La Land.
7: That was my pick last year. I, in fact, I voted for it for Best Picture. Loved that movie.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this was one of the rare films that you saw multiple times in the theaters, right?
7: Yes, yes. It it was just, uh, and I still, I mean, the music is still in my head. And by the way, the same people that wrote La La Land that wrote the music for it wrote um, a film that I don't think is on any of our lists, The Greatest Showman, which actually is a very enjoyable film. That was and that's just out in theaters right yeah. now, too.
3: Okay,
0: Cole. Drum roll, this is, by the way, while I was talking about La La Land, Cole was sitting here shaking his head. I don't
2: think he agrees with my pick for number <laughs> I, one. I like La La Land. It's a perfectly fine movie, <laughs> but it's no Spider Man Homecoming. <gasps> is that your number one? <laughs> my number one movie of 2017 was Spider Man, the newest wow. version of Spider Man, because we got the truest version of Spider Man. To reemphasize the point, I grew up in the '90s, and the animated series, uh, the Adventures, of the Amazing Spider-Man, was my childhood, and that was the first entry point for me into superheroes, into comic books later on as well. And right after that animated version, the the version we got out of Tom Holland portraying Spider-Man is my second favorite I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. toby mcguire would be somewhere after that drake bell's voice being lent to the ultimate spider-man cartoon is after that then there's 50 feet of spider web and then <laughs> there there is andrew garfield and what he put together for the wow. amazing spider-man one and two tom holland truly gave us a young peter parker that is convincing in being kind of awkward and nerdy and and an outcast but still just his ultimate goal is to do good new york is his his city and he makes it feel like a little town when you're in it even though it's the biggest city in all of the United States Um, but he brings it home and he really his goal is to be that friendly neighborhood Spider-Man and you get it and he he brings it off very effectively while still belonging in a greater universe. He didn't have to battle a sky beam or the end of the world. He just battled what is, I think, the greatest villain that the Marvel Universe has given us is Michael Keaton's Vulture.
0: You can't go wrong with Michael Keaton.
2: It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You put wings on him and it's yeah. going to be even better because it might be Birdman or Batman as well. But <laughs> in the him as the Vulture is by far the best that Marvel's done in a villain, he complimented the hero perfectly in their ideals. They were both on the ground level. Everything about the themes of the movie and just the execution were fantastic from just a movie perspective, even if it wasn't starring my personal favorite comic book or fictional character of all time. But it was, and I had those nostalgia <laughs> cords being pulled as well, and... Spider-Man: Homecoming. I have my to favorite. admit, Cole,
0: you kind of make me. This kind of makes me want to go watch it over again to to see because I, I I enjoyed it. But uh, I, yeah, it's not, this
2: it's, one wasn't just a comic book movie. This had more to it and was deeper than what mm-hmm. the MCU's put out so far.
7: My opinion. absolutely. And if we had a top ten list, it would be on my list. And one of the, one of the reasons we gave it the B plus apparent previews was we really appreciated the message. That age has their wisdom comes with age, and having the role that Tony Stark plays as a Absolutely. mentor to Peter Parker, we thought was really good for young people to see the value of older people in society, something we don 't see often enough in movies.
2: those young rebels are always just trying to, yeah. to shake their fists at the old generation, but. <laughs>
0: All right, Rod, this is really the moment we've all been waiting for. Our number one pick from our number one movie critic from Parent Previews, and it is...
7: It is Wonder, you know, and this is, if Parent Previews was giving the award for best movie, like, I know this is not going to be Oscar material, but we really, really loved the movie Wonder. And uh, this, of course, is the story of a young boy played by Jacob Tremblay, who does just an incredible job in this movie, and... Um, He has a facial deformity, a severe facial deformity. And his parents, played by Owen Wilson and Julia Roberts, who do a marvelous job in this film, of course, like any parents, are very concerned about sending him to school on his first day. And guess what? He's bullied like crazy at school and everything else. But this is a movie about bullying, but it is very different than any other movie I've seen about bullying. My big um, criticism of many other movies that approach this topic is they never explore the bully. This one explores the bully. It explores the child who is bullied, the char- the main character. It also explores other people around him, like, for instance, his slightly older sister. The whole focus has been on her brother and f- from her parents. And although her parents love her as well, she has some issues and whatnot she needs to sort out. You leave this film thinking about how other people feel in a very um, in, a, in a very different way. And so it's full of wonderful lessons. It's got some humor to it. It's got a happy ending. It's rated PG. It's extremely well done. It comes from Walden Media, and this movie is brushing close to the $200 million mark, which wow. I was so impressed. This film has made a lot of money. I think it's probably... Walden Media made the uh, Narnia series. and I, I need to look it up. I think this may be their most financially successful movie ever. And I rarely would ever say this about a film, but I would love to see this film shown in public schools everywhere. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful movie.
0: Mm, that is another one that I never got around to seeing. So I'm predicting that for next year when we do our best of 2018 list, we'll see films like Wonder or Darkest Hour on there <laughs> because, yeah, I just haven't seen them. There've been way too yeah. many. There was nothing all year long and then the last week of December it seems boom, here's a dozen films yes. that you need to see. I
7: mean, yeah, yeah, and that's what that's what happened last year too and it's one of the faults of of the awards in in how the awards shows work because they don't want people like so I vote within the broadcast film critic circle and whether you're an an academy voter or or people's are not people's choice, sorry, um the Hollywood Foreign Press where critics, groups like ours, they think that we'll forget about movies that came out in March. And so they back end the entire year, which is frustrating. It really is.
0: Well, Rod and Cole, we really appreciate you guys putting together your list kind of last minute. I know that I threw that on you last minute, but uh, we really appreciate you. And here are a list of really 18 films that you should definitely check out because they made our – I'll, I'll have to see if I'll get around to Power Rangers, Cole, but I'll definitely take <laughs> another look at Spider-Man Homecoming. And uh, we've enjoyed having you both here on the show. That is our best of show for 2017 here on Screen Cleaning. We'll be back next week to give you the best in entertainment. This is Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. <laughs>